UpperCervicalDocs.com. Hi, this is Dr. Paul Hambrick with UpperCervicalDocs.com, and here's a three-part interview I did with Dr. Kirk Erickson. Dr. Erickson is very well known within the chiropractic community and is an upper cervical doctor licensed in Alabama and Georgia and has been in private practice since 1991. He is the vice president of the Society of Chiropractic Orthospinology, which teaches and certifies doctors in the Grostic Procedure of Precision Spinal Care. In addition, Dr. Erickson was awarded Chiropractor of the Year by the Alabama Chiropractic Council in 1997 and in 2004 by the Society of Chiropractic Orthospinology. He was de designated as Researcher of the Year for 2006 by the World Chiropractic Alliance. He is a renowned lecturer and has taught around the world on various topics, and he is the author of two landmark books, Upper Cervical Subluxation Complex, a review of the chiropractic and medical literature, and Orthospinology Procedures, an evidence-based approach to spinal care. In this fascinating interview, Dr. Erickson discusses his early life, including a connection to the icon Buford Pusser, how his high school football experience rivals that of the movie Facing the Giants, how he was introduced to chiropractic, how he decided to pursue upper cervical chiropractic, his experience as a student of Dr. John Grostick, his early practice experience, what it's like to author and have published a major textbook, and much, much more. Dr. Erickson is a great storyteller. We talked for over two hours, and I know you'll love this interview. Please enjoy. Okay, well then, uh, let's, with the first question, uh, let's just uh, hear a little bit about your history, where you were born, where you grew up. Okay, I was born in Montclair, New Jersey. And my mother is uh, from Brazil, and my father is from Norway, and they met in New Jersey, of all places. And I was uh, actually consummated um, in Norway, in Europe, because my parents lived there for a year when they got engaged and got married in Europe. I was born in New Jersey, but I actually, of course, it all started in Europe, I guess. But interesting with the background with my father being... Norwegian and my mother being Brazilian, that makes me half Viking and half headhunter. I was going to say. So I started I, off pretty good there, I guess. For and a good uh, dancer. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, I lived in New Jersey until I was about uh, eight, almost nine years old. And then we moved, of all places, to southwest Tennessee, which the interesting thing about that is I lived in the same town as Buford Pusser. And for uh, the older doctors, they would remember the famous movie Walking Tall. Yeah. Well, that was the same town that he lived in. And I moved there the year after he died in the car accident. And my next-door neighbor was what became my Aunt Trellis. She was one of his girlfriends. And, uh, you know, you, and you probably saw some of that in the movie, but she had all these pictures and would tell me stories about him and I was just fascinated by the whole deal, and of course the movie came out, and it was a big deal back then to me. But I went from being kind of a you know a new city New Jersey boy to now a, a hick in the south, the deep south, mm -hmm. southwest Tennessee. And if you watch the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So that was a big contrast. We only lived there for a little over two years, but then I moved to Central Florida, and I pretty much grew up there in the uh, Ocala, Denellen area. So that's where um, I'd finished high school and uh, went from there. I, I noticed uh, the times that I've heard you talk uh, that you had a slight accent. I just assumed you were from Alabama. Really? It's funny when people say that I have a slight accent because, uh, you know, I hear the people's accent from Alabama. But, yeah, I've, I've heard that many times, so I guess it kind of, you know, 
kind of sticks on you a little bit. But, what um, what yeah. did your father do that uh, uh, you know you had such a, a topographical uh, uh, variety uh, growing up? Well, my father um, is uh, you know he's done various things. So it was a carpenter, but uh, majority of his career he's owned a kitchen cabinet business called Viking Woodworking. And my dad is a, um, of course, big contrast between a European, um, you know, male and a, and a South American female. My mother is a very touchy-feely, um, very, you know, affectionate person. My father is, you know, more, you know, like a European, strict, a little bit more austere and, and whatnot. But my father is a perfectionist, and I think that's what really I get a lot of that um, from like, I'm to the point I've got a little mild OCD I think in a lot of areas unfortunately you know it's kind of a good it's like a curse and a blessing at the same time but my father working in his kit, kitchen cabinet business since I was a little kid um, I would build things and uh, I actually had become probably one of his best workers um, but I would build something and it would be and, and something would be slightly off in the cabinet and it would be in an area that it was underneath a, a countertop in the back where no one could ever see it no way possible and my father would would pick up on it and he would make me tear it up and do it all over again <laughs> you know and, and and you know that's just the way he was mm-hmm. you know he wanted it right mm-hmm. and of course doing upper cervical work as you very well know um you know there's what um i remember dr craig york many years ago brought used this term called uh, clinical ethics it takes clinical ethics to do this work. And, and what he means is different what most people think along those lines. He was talking about, uh, for instance, this morning here um, on my off day, I had you know all these patients come in, and it was a bit overwhelming, and, and I, had, uh, I had four reported findings, and I, I posted them, and, and two out of the four, I didn't get quite as good a correction as I knew I should have. And even though I was way behind trying to get ready for this interview, on and on, I knew I had to readjust them. Even though I had a good correction, I cleared them out. They were off three-quarters of an inch. Their pelvis balanced. They felt better. And I knew I could let them go home, and they'd be okay. But I knew that, I, you know, because there's a certain, you know, criteria that we go by. That we have to reduce it a certain amount and whatnot. That I need to reduce it a little bit more. And, again, no one's going to notice that but me, pretty much. Now, of course, I think the patient will benefit, you know, some as well. But it's little things like that. It's, it's setting them up, adjusting that patient, and checking them again, and knowing that you didn't quite get it. Now, if you have you know five or six people waiting on you, are you going to go ahead and reset up that patient and do it again, or are you going to justify saying, "Oh, good enough. You know, I'm behind. You know, people have been waiting here 45 minutes. I need to get going." You know, it's those decisions I think that really separates. You know, true subluxation-based chiropractors who are really walking the walk and not just talking the talk. I have a, uh, a friend who always tells his uh, kids that integrity is doing the right thing when no one's looking. And exactly. That sounds like clinical integrity. Exactly. You know, um, my uh, what got me into chiropractic was um, when I was 14. I uh, hurt my back in the weight room. Lifting weights in the summertime uh, for the varsity football team, and it's kind of interesting. I remember I was in a lot of pain, but I didn't want to go to a chiropractor, not because I didn't, you know, quote unquote, believe in a chiropractor, but I just didn't like going to any kind of a doctor, and I just thought oh, I just would deal with the pain and it would go away. 
and my mother had always gone to chiropractors and she uh, finally took me to her chiropractor and you know even though my back was hurt uh, I remember he did this instrument graph on me and he told me that I had a problem in my neck also and I thought that was kind of curious and uh, I know when he adjusted me he would measure temperature on each of my atlas fossa areas with this little it, knowing now what it is, I didn't know what it was at the time, it was a little infrared um, measuring device, but I thought that was just the coolest thing, that he was like actually checking this. He checked me before, and he adjusted me, and then he checked it afterward, and, and you know, there was like, hmm, this is interesting. And of course, he helped me greatly. Um, and then I um, had, um, I was involved in a really severe automobile accident, um, where my head hit the roof, inside and actually dented the roof it hit it so hard and I was so crippled up after that wreck I had to be carried to the chiropractor literally and he I actually walked out on my own this was the same chiropractor what's that this was the same chiropractor same chiropractor okay yeah this uh Dr. Douglas Kuhn and um in Ocala Florida and I did a great job um I hurt my neck really bad another football injury and, and you know and I would always go to him of course one of my motivations in going to him is he had a beautiful um, chiropractic assistant <laughs> that would you know take care of me put me in the room and of course initially he did therapy um, when I first went to him and it's interesting because later in my high school career he did away with all therapy and he went to you know a straight practice <laughs> um, but initially she used to do ultrasound on me and rub the gel on me and <laughs> do all that and of course I thought that was the greatest thing you know? <laughs> I didn't I said I'll go as much as you tell me to go <laughs> so um, but anyway I had a very good experience uh, but really my focus was um, that I was going to play college football and uh, take a shot at the pros I mean that, that was my whole focus growing up um, I uh, um, grew up in an area of course Central Florida is a very big you know football area and I, I went to a school that is, um, you know, and I'll probably go off on a tangent here because I think this is kind of interesting anecdote. Sure. Um, I uh, went to Denellen High School, and it's such an interesting story that I'm actually, after I finished the last orthophonology book, I said I would never write another book again. So that's it. I'm done. Um, but um, I, I get season tickets to the Florida State Seminoles, and I take my son and one of his friends, you know, to the games, and um, come to find out, my old football coach lives now on the way to Tallahassee from where I live in Dothan, Alabama. So uh, a couple of years ago, I went to go visit him. And we sat down and we talked about the old days a little bit and, and about the story about the school. And he made a couple comments. He says, you know, someone should write a, a book about what happened in Denellen. And he said a couple other things. And he told me a couple of stories that I didn't know about. One thing led to another and I have set out to write a book. I'm actually writing a book that I'm almost finished with, and then I'm writing a screenplay for a movie <laughs> on the, the story because the story is, is much more interesting than Remember the Titans or Friday Night Lights or all these other movies that have come out. And I'll tell you very briefly about it. Um, Coach Richard Kennedy, um, when he came to our school, in 76, uh, the school had literally won um, six games in five years, and it was just a total mess. There was a lot of racial issues. Um, there was uh, no discipline. Um, it was just a horrible deal. The little river town, 
but people love football. But this school just really stunk. Everybody, we were at everyone's homecoming game. And when he took, came in there as an assistant, um, they uh, didn't win any games that year either. And he had an incident in the beginning of the, of the year where he finally had the biggest guy on the team actually cursed him in practice. And he just lost it. He jumped on the guy, grabbed him, threw him on the ground, and got on top of him. And basically he says, you know, you ever do that again, you know, yada, yada. Which even back then in the 70s, you couldn't do that. You can't grab kids and manhandle them. So basically he goes home and he packs up his stuff and he's leaving because he knows he's lost his job, he's lost his career, he's lost everything. So he tells his wife, you know, we're, get, we're out of here. So he doesn't even go to school the next day. Well, the boy's parents come to the school looking for him and the head coach and the principal of the school say, well, Coach Kennedy's not here. So they go looking for him. So they go to his house and they catch him before he leaves and they say, hey, this kid's parents that are at the school won't know what's, what happened. And he says, okay. He says, will you talk to him? He says, oh, sure, I'll talk to him. I'll owe that to him. So he goes to the school, uh, meets the big daddy, and of course he asks what happened, and then Coach Kennedy explains it to him, and then the dad stops him and says, listen, I've heard enough. He says, you didn't do anything wrong. He says, I'll go home. I'm taking care of this situation. He says, and told the principal, leave this coach alone. He did nothing wrong. So that kind of reminded me of the movie Hoosiers, you know, where he got a second chance after he punched the player, and, of course, made a second chance and had the state championship you know, on the basketball team. So, anyway, the next year, Coach Kennedy actually was given the head coaching job. And because it was such a horrible program, he set out to run off all the players. You know, it was old school, Bear Bryant style. And he ended up with only um, 16 players. Actually, excuse me, 15 players is all he had. And so they started off the year. And keep in mind, they've won six games in five years well that first year they won eight games with 15 players the next year undefeated state champions the next year undefeated state champions the next year is when they broke the state record for most wins which was 36 games in a row um and that's when i came into play i started playing after that and uh great super program the one of the most amazing statistics i think in football he coached 104 games at Denellen High School. 49 games were shutouts. 49. 20 out of the remaining, um, what, 55 games, the opponent only scored one time. That was it. And this is a little river town. Um, we were we played schools much bigger than us every year. We were in Central Florida. Super talent. We played against. I played with and against guys that played. You know, major college football in the NFL, guys that played in the Super Bowl, guys. Um, so it was a unique experience. But long story short, with all my injuries and, and not knowing what was wrong with my neck, I uh, found out later that I have cervical stenosis, meaning that my, even though I'm a big guy, my cervical canal is smaller than normal. So that's why, you know, if I would, you know, and you know, head on tackles, you know, I would get stingers all the time. So I did work hard. I did get a, a college football scholarship, um, but it was to, um, you know, small schools like out in Kansas or Arkansas. And and because of my injuries with my neck um, and uh, just uh, not wanting to go out in the West, you know, out in Kansas and wanting to stay in Florida where the sun and girls and then starting to get interested in this chiropractic thing, I decided um, I got an academic scholarship for um, for the first two years of school. And I decided to take that, and this is when 
course, I'm talking with my chiropractor about um, more about this profession, and that's when he gave me the chiropractic story, and he really told me more about how it's not just about bad necks and backs, and it's about your nerve system, your health, and on and on, and uh, I thought, that's pretty intriguing, and so I just set out to research and read some books, and I would follow different chiropractors, I would follow him around, <clears throat> and I decided that this was something worth pursuing, and so um, I actually even talked to one of my best friends from high school into going with me, because he was wanting to be an orthopedist, and I said, you don't want to do that, I said, you want to be a chiropractor, so he didn't know anything about it, he'd never been to a chiropractor, but I talked him into coming to life with me to take a tour, and next thing you know it, he decided to uh, go to life, and uh, we started in January of 1988. My best friend, uh, Bennett Patterson, or one of my best friends, uh, we had this planned out. We were going to go to car. We we're going to go to chiropractic school together in Atlanta. We we're going to live together. We we're going to save, you know, be careful with our expenses. We we're going to have fun, go out, yada yada. Well, all of a sudden, he decides he's going to get married a month before we go up there. <laughs> So I'm thinking, you just ruined everything. What did you do this for? So he says, well, it, it, it doesn't change anything. We can still, you know, room together and all this stuff. And I says, wait a minute now. You're newlywed. I don't think that's a good idea. And he says, no, no, I talked with his wife, you know, the be. So I yeah. talked with her about it. She said, it's fine. So here's how I started off chiropractic school. We moved in to anybody who went to life in this era might would know the apartments called Whispering Oaks. Okay, this is not creme de la creme stuff. This is, you know, we paid a hundred. Here's what we did. We got a one-bedroom apartment, okay? We paid $189 a month that I lived in a one-bedroom apartment with a newlywed couple. <laughs> so I slept in the living room in the corner, okay? They had the bedroom, obviously. And uh, so, you know, you can imagine it didn't take too long that, you know, I go from one of my buddies to I'm being kicked out you know, yeah. in about six months. So I didn't talk to Bennett for over a year, even though we're going to the same school, you know, we're from the same town and all that. But we got over it and kind of uh, got past it. But, you know, that was kind of um, a, a problem waiting to happen. <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, in that apartment complex, I literally lived in, <clears throat> let me think, four different apartments in that same complex because what happened was when I moved out I moved in with a roommate from life who was from Michigan and I remember when we moved in that one day first of all it took me 30 minutes to move my stuff mm. I mean that's back in the days where all I got is a TV and I never had a I never had a bed all through my chiropractic years I never had a bed I had I, I was able to sleep in a day bed the last three last quarter when I had another roommate that had an extra day bed I could sleep in. What I slept on was a mattress that I would roll up and tie it up in a cord and I could stick it in my little car and that was my bed. Yeah. And uh, that's all I needed, you know. <clears throat> but anyway, I moved in 30 minutes into this apartment. I had this roommate from Michigan, real nice guy. Um, but he, um, as soon as we moved in together that day, he starts talking about. He stressed out over his grades. He stressed out over his grades. And uh, it was kind of, at first I thought, I had no big deal. But um, literally, we stayed. he stayed up all night talking about his grades. And I said, listen, don't you have like a 3.5 GPA or something? He says, yeah, I did. But we just took our, our finals. He says, oh, I'm going to flunk, and my parents are going to waste their money. And 
Uh, and so I found out real quickly, he was neurotic. <laughs> and he was making me insane. He kept me up all night talking about this. And I said, listen, I don't care what you're thinking about these grades thing. You ain't going nowhere. I said, we just moved into this apartment. And I says, and I got to have a roommate. You know, we, you know, we, we, we're, we're, you're stuck. You got to stick it out, man. And he kept on going and going. So anyway, there were some other guys from Michigan at Life, and I said, you got to talk to this guy. He's going nuts. And uh, they tried to talk him and calm him down. Well, lo and behold, he, the next day he left. Oh, man. He just took off and left. And so I was stuck. And, uh, of course, and even though it wasn't a lot of money to me back then, it was. I couldn't stay in an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment by myself. So um, I was able to move in to another apartment um, the next day with two guys from Alabama, which is interesting because <clears throat> they both graduated from Auburn. And I remember uh, one guy, I ended up uh, just, we just got along great. I mean, it was just super. And the other guy was just, um, just I don't know, just didn't jive with him. And I remember thinking to myself during that time, I said, you know what? I don't know exactly where I'm going to live when I graduate, but I can tell you one thing. I ain't going to live in Alabama. There ain't no way. Because, you know, you already have, have these preconceived notions about Alabama, and then this guy here, I thought, oh, my gosh, if people are like that, there, forget it. So, um, and, and look where I ended up yeah. um, in Alabama. But I love it here where I live um, in southeast Alabama. It's a great place to, um, you know, raise a family and, and whatnot. It's a nice town. and and about 65,000 people. So uh, anyway, and then um, we lived there together for quite some time, and then I ended up uh, moving again in the same apartment complex with another guy, Dr. Matthew Stockstead, who was a former monk. <laughs> he was a former Catholic monk who was married. Ah. Now, this is interesting. His wife is going to, to the Dental College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia, and they so they were married, but they're living apart because he's going to chiropractic school. And Matthew and I become very good friends. Uh, we had a, a good good buddy of ours that lived in the next apartment across the way, and he was Jewish. Remember that? And uh, so I had a Catholic monk and Jewish, and then of course the other this other guy was Church of Christ, and of course Church of Christ think that all of us are going to hell except yeah. for them, you know. <laughs> So it was kind of an interesting circle there, and I'm just sitting there trying to figure things out in my head, you know. Um, but uh, Matthew and I are still, to this day, great friends. He's a very he's a strong intellectual person. Um, he was older than me. I was, uh, at this time, I'm 21, um, and he was, I think, 27. So he was, you know, much more mature than I and, and whatnot, and he taught me a lot about a lot of different things. So, A former that, monk at 27 years old, that is uh, different. Yes, it is. And, Becoming uh, a monk isn't like going into the military. That's right. <laughs> he was an interesting guy and, and still is. Um, he's kind of, uh, you know, now, did hard, you, he's hard to pigeonhole. He started what? It's hard to pigeonhole him. Oh, it's hard, okay. Yeah, because he's not just one type of person. You know, he's, he's a lot of different types. And uh, so anyway. Now, did yeah. you go to chiropractic school uh, with an upper cervical focus in mind? Because really of... not, because Dr. Kuhn at that time um, originally he, you know, he was biomechanically focused. He was he was more of a biomechanics type. I'm not. I don't know that he was really like into CBT, but he was kind of along those lines. So even though he was a full spine um, osseous adjuster, he was specific. Um, he didn't just rack and crack. 
um, you know, uh, you know, indiscriminately. Um, and uh, so, but that's really all I knew. Now, I, he, I think, since then got into a little bit more upper cervical. But my focus going into chiropractic was that, you know, hey, it's just, um, you know, uh, manipulation and, and whatnot. As a matter of fact, I was <clears throat> quite slender back then. I was easy to palpate, so I would let everybody practice on me. And everybody would palpate on me, and I would let everybody twist and pop me because I was real easy to do, and, and I'd volunteer for everything. And, of course, now all of a sudden I started having a lot of problems, <laughs> and which is, you know, very common. But what happened with me at chiropractic school was my in first quarter at life, um, Dr. John Grostick was one of my instructors, and um, you know he was uh, you know, teacher of the year. You know, two years before that, um, he, he was far and away the most popular teacher at life. Um, just an incredible man. Uh, just his intellect was amazing. You know, he he was the type of person that he could talk about. Um, advanced neurophysiology one moment and then talk about the development and, uh, and how, uh, the atomic bomb and how that works to um, a theological discourse and then back to chiropractic philosophy. I mean, he could just go all over the place. He was, um, to this day, he was the greatest um, lecturer I've ever heard, uh, most interesting person I've ever uh, met in my life, really. Was he a gregarious guy? You know, he he had a um, he no he wasn't he he had first of all he had a very dry sense of humor I and mean, he was hilarious to listen to, but in a very different way. He was the type of person that would walk around campus with his head down. Matter of fact, he wouldn't even acknowledge people that he knew, partly because he was so busy. I mean, he worked in a research department and he didn't have time people to stop him and talk to him. And he was very shy one on one trying to talk to him. It's very difficult to talk to him. But if you got him up in front of a group of people, I mean, he was amazing. Hmm. You know, he just was that way. But what happened with me was that I remember thinking, boy, this guy is super. And then coming back to my apartment and talking to my roommate, and I just had found out that this guy's upper cervical. And I said, you know, do you mean to tell me this guy only adjusts the neck even if someone's got a back problem? And I remember telling my roommate, I says, man... That's a bunch of bull crap. I said, you know, I really like that guy until I found out about that. He's weird, you know? And so I just kind of dismissed the whole thing. Well, the next quarter, I had an instructor named <clears throat> Dr. Larry Steinley, and he did orthospinology also. Now, Larry eventually got into atlas orthogonal and, um, as well, but he was a very, um, he taught biomechanics, and he was a great teacher, and he was very, he was funny um, in his own little kooky way. Uh, he just, the way he told stories, he had this really interesting sense of humor, and people just were attracted to him. Um, he, um, he eventually, uh, talking to him, he invited me to come to his practice to watch him on a Saturday. So I agreed to do that because this is the time where I decided I was going to go. I was going to all the different clubs on campus, and I was my goal was to visit as many different chiropractors as I could in the Atlanta area that did various techniques, and I wanted to watch them and see what they did and observe and see what I wanted to do. Um, because you know, I thought all I thought chiropractic was just this one thing going into school, and I found went up to school and I found it's all kinds of different techniques. So I was just intrigued by it. So anyway, I go to Dr. Steinley's practice. And one of the first patients he has is this 10-year-old little boy who um, had 
eventually had seizures when he first came to see him. And his parents are with him. And first thing that struck me is they had come up from South Georgia. Now, Atlanta is far away from South Georgia. I mean, they, they had driven hours to come see Dr. Steinle. And they told me the story. And they said, well, a couple of years ago when we brought our son to Dr. Steinle, he was having 10 grand mal seizures a day. Hmm. He had obviously been to you know various neurologists. Um, he was on various medications. Um, and that seemed to help the seizures some. It would, he still had them, but they kind of reduced them, you know, a few less per day. They brought him to a chiropractor that they had described was doing manipulation. And he said that seemed to help a little bit, but not a whole lot. Well, they had found out about Dr. Steinlein. And I remember Dr. Steinlein showed me the vertex. And at that time, I didn't know what a vertex was or what it meant. But he, I do remember him pointing out on the vertex that the child had 10 degrees of atlas rotation. Mm-hmm. which we both know now is a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. And the parents said that Dr. Steinle adjusted his atlas, and he went from 10 grand mal seizures to one mild seizure per week. Mm-hmm. In other words, he had 10 grand mal seizures per day, excuse me, 10 per day to one mild seizure per week. Wow. So obviously, this completely changes this child's life. I mean, he goes from not having to wear a you know a football helmet and being partially mentally retarded and not able to go to school to now. He, um, uh, I had learned since then, you know, of course, was able to finish school and went on to college. And uh, I think he, you know, has some mental defects, you know, deficits because of what happened, you know, all the years before he got chiropractic care. But completely changed the child's life, and the parents were just, you know, oohing and on about it. And, and you know, that was the first patient. And then he had all these other different patients, weird cases that I didn't think chiropractors took care of. And it was just another day for him. It was just this, you know, and he had fun in his practice. He was quirky and funny, and uh, I just loved the guy to death. And, uh, you know, he really started changing my mind about this upper cervical stuff. And so as I went and I visited, other upper cervical doctors like um, Dr. Tom Burnett down in Union City, Dr. J.K. Umber, um, Dr. Steve Umber, Dr. Bobby Smith, um, Dr. Steve Sheik, Dr. Hugh Crow. Um, oh gosh, I'm leaving out. Um, there's there's others that I'm, I'm not even thinking of that uh, I could just go on and on. But I would notice in these upper cervical practices that a couple things. One, that they tended to take care of different types of cases. Yeah. Um, they they took care of a lot of um, you know not just you know back pain and neck pain but a lot of patients with all sorts of odd neurological um, problems and uh, you know unusual health complaints. Um, Dr. J. Camber, remember, had one case that uh, the mother had told me that her child was paralyzed mm-hmm. when he she brought him to Dr. Umber, and it was a, a kind of an old country woman, and she said, "Yeah, I used to carry him around on my back." Mm-hmm. I, carry him, towed him everywhere, and he says, and he got hit in the, in the head with a basketball and turned up lame, couldn't walk no more, and uh, Dr. Dr. J.K. adjusted him, and, and he's able to walk, you know, and he's went to college, and this and that, and you know, just, just stuff like that, another patient, Dr. Sheik's office, um, came out of the waiting room and was pulling on her ear, and uh, she said, um, she said, so that was what was wrong with my hearing. And mm. apparently she was deaf in her ear, and she got her atlas adjusted for the first time and walked out there. And the guy that was with her said, well, what did he do to you? 
she said, well, he just pulled on my ear. <laughs> so I can hear now. I, said, I don't know what he did. You know, and, of course, she was clueless, but, you know, just little things like that. And, of course, I could go on and on uh, talking about cases, um, amazing stuff. Um, I'll tell you one other one. At the end of my chiropractic um, schooling, I had a roommate who um, had severe asthma. And I remember vividly his field chiropractor had come up to Atlanta to go to a tennis seminar. And he had always told him, and he was adjusting his atlas too, by the way. And he would tell me that when he, whenever he gets adjusted, he seems to get worse. And I said, well, you know, maybe something's not being adjusted properly. And he had x-rays taken and whatnot. Well, he, the chiropractor came and adjusted him and then left. And then that night, he got worse and worse and worse. And he got to where he wasn't breathing. And so I panicked, and I brought him to the hospital right there off of Windy Hill Road. Mm -hmm. And I stayed up with him all night. They did those breathing treatments and had him hooked up. And, you know, he's, you know, I thought, my gosh, he's going to die. Well, anyway, we got him home, and I said, listen, if we do nothing else, we're going to bring you to our upper cervical chiropractor who obviously knows what he's doing. And I says, we're going to take you to Dr. Bobby Smith. And so the next day, I took him to Dr. Bobby Smith. He got a new set of x-rays. And come to find out, he was being adjusted on the opposite side, mm. on the wrong side. So he got x-rayed, examined, and then he came back later when I was not with him to get the adjustment. But he said he got adjusted. He says, I couldn't feel anything when he adjusted me. And the other chiropractor is pounding me to death. Mm. You know, it hurts what he does. If this guy did something, I didn't even feel it. And he says, when I got in my car and drove home, instantly my lungs just opened up. Mm. For the first time, I could breathe. He says, it was incredible. And uh, so, again, it just goes to the fact that, you know, it's a tremendous responsibility we have in intervening into someone's spine. Dr. Grostick used to talk about how the upper cervical adjustment is an invasive procedure Mm -hmm. because we are going in there and we are intervening into the function of the central nervous system. So it just makes sense that we need to know what we're doing. We can't just go in there haphazardly and poking and prodding and just playing with this and just hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. We have to have a plan. We have to have a, a process that will give us the best chances of making a correction. And not just that, but having a way of assessing when we've made a correction and when we have not made a correction and knowing what to change. And again, this is going to, and I tell people all the chiropractors all the time, it's not that upper cervical care is right and <clears throat> manipulation or other full spine techniques are wrong. It's not about that. What I see about upper cervical care is a couple things. One, um, when you look at all the miracles that take place in chiropractic, uh, the vast majority of all of them involve adjusting the upper cervical spine, even cases where they may adjust the, the sacrum or the lumbar and the thoracic, they're always going to just go up there and do something to C2 or something. Mm-hmm. It's always involved, especially with the miracle cases. So that being the case, if the upper cervical spine is so important, and obviously with my first textbook, Upper Cervical Subluxation Complex, I have made a compelling and uh, argument that the upper cervical spine is the most critical area from a biomechanical standpoint, from a kinematic standpoint, from an anatomical and from a neurological standpoint as far as the health and wellness of a, of a human being. That being said, doesn't it make sense that one needs to approach that procedure, that area of the spine 
with a specific approach instead of a generic approach to adjusting. Not because other methods don't work, because they do. It's just that upper cervical care gives you, in my opinion, the best chance of getting consistent results in consistent corrections. Mm -hmm. And so basically, it just increases your odds of getting those quote-unquote miracle cases. Every chiropractor gets miracle cases. Mm -hmm. But I think upper cervical gives you your best chance at it uh, with the approach that we take. You uh, obviously have a very analytical and a very academic approach to things. What with, uh, well, even your upbringing, uh, I'm having a... Uh, Perfection, a perfectionist uh, for a father, and uh, uh, doing that yourself, and you know these stories about uh, how you really pursued uh, your uh, profession while you were in school. Did you always intend on having a practice, or had you at some point planned being purely academic with all this? No, um, I. Uh I just wanted to get out and practice just pure chiropractic. I'll tell you how, um, how motivated I was. I joined a practice management consultant in my second quarter at chiropractic school. Wow. And that's how fired up I was. I mean, I was ready to go out and practice. And, uh, and, and that was my sole focus. And I remember, you know, my practice here, um, I'm pretty good at documenting um, even though I don't like doing it, obviously nobody likes doing it. It's just uh, you know, it's just one of the requirements. Unfortunately, um, I have been a expert uh, witness in various uh, malpractice cases. Um, you know, of course, I've testified many times in court and you know, different um, personal injury cases and other things. And I see the need for um, for documenting, and, and it's just so sad that um, so many chiropractors are just really innocent. And the things that happen to them, but because of their records are so poor, um, you know they end up uh, being looked at as guilty, and um, it really costing them. If they just would have took the time to have a systematic approach to documenting your cases, and I bring that up because that's not the way I thought in chiropractic school. I remember vividly saying that I did not want to ever accept the PI case. I didn't ever want to do a report. I just wanted to have a cash practice. I didn't want to take any notes. I didn't want to fool with any of that stuff. I just wanted to adjust. That's all I want to do. Well, Dr. Grostick used to would teach us that no, you need a document. As a matter of fact, you need to have really good records and on and on. And I used to think, oh gosh, you know, I don't like that idea. Um, and you know, I would think, man, you know, surely there's got to be another way. And but lo and behold, he was right. And I'll tell you another thing, Dr. Grostick was right about that. I also disagreed with. In his chiropractic philosophy class, um, he um, he has a specific lecture um, about the it's what he called the stigmatized profession, and what it is, he kind of goes into the issues of why chiropractic, uh, why we have the problems that we have in our profession, and it's because of um, we're basically stigmatized, you know, because of the um, you know the uh, the propaganda the medical profession has brought against chiropractors, the lack of quote-unquote acceptance of the profession and whatnot, and how it leads to so many problems. And one of the questions he would ask us is he would say, how many in this room believe that when they get out of school that they'll, they're going to be the best chiropractor in their town, that they're going to be better chiropractor than, you know, 
pretty much anybody they know or, or something along those lines. And, of course, you know, me being this high-strung, you know, uh, cocky guy, oh, mine was the first arm to go up. <laughs> By God, I was going to be the best chiropractor known to man, uh-huh. you know. And, uh, and of course, um, you know, some, some raised their hand, a lot of them didn't. And, uh, and he would basically point out that the ones that raised their hand had the wrong attitude. You know, that was wrong to think that way. And that really messed with my head because I thought it was all about, hey, you need, because that's the way I was always taught, you know, in, in football, you know, um, you know, you push, you strive to, you know, to do your best, you know, to be the best that you can and, and whatnot. Um, you know, some of the life lessons that I learned uh, playing for Richard Kennedy are things that I still fall back on in my day-to-day life. Um, one of the things that he was known for was uh, the 40-40s. You know, we would practice for, you know, two, two, two and a half hours, then we would run for, you know, 30 or 40 minutes. And it would just, it would basically testing your, your courage and your character because we would sprint 40 yards and jog back. That was one. And sprint 40 yards and jog back. And this is after you were already dead dog tired. Mm. And then we would do gassers running across the field and Jerichos and miles and all this stuff. So basically, you were pushed to the point where, you know, you thought you would die. Mm. And then, literally, and then you would somehow overcome it. And, and of course, most kids would quit. And he was looking for basically the ones that would quit no matter what. They would stick it out, mm. and they just would just pursue. And of course, that was really the, the the success of the program is because we were in better shape, and you know, we would never quit, and we were going to be as strong in the fourth quarter as the first quarter. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have all these you know things that you know are kind of built up in me, and, and that I think you know it, it's about me, you know, overcoming and whatnot. But Grostick was really talking the same thing Coach Kennedy was talking about because he always talked about teamwork. And I think that's what Dr. Grostick was really getting back at was that it's not about you being the best. It's about being the best you can, but keeping in mind that you're a part of a team. And the team is the chiropractic profession. And we cannot promote ourselves at, at, at the mercy of denigrating our fellow chiropractors. Because you know, you, you, if you bring down your other chiropractors, you bring down yourself in the process, mm-hmm. and and that's kind of tough sometimes. Because doing the work that we do, we it's natural to think that what you do is better because you take more time with this work. You know, you're more detailed, and, and you see a lot of shoddy work out there where chiropractors. It just seems like they don't even care. Mm-hmm. You know, if they do a good adjustment or a bad adjustment, and and so it's kind of a, a fine line you walk. Um, you know, I always try to do the best I can in my profession, in my pra- in my career, not to put down my local chiropractors. You know, patients come in and they tell me all these crazy tales, and you know, you just have to kind of just you know keep your mouth shut and and just uh, stick to what you do because you know, really, you know, pr- promoting what you do, people are smart. They can figure out the differences and they can make up their own uh, minds and. And that's just something I think that's a good advice for younger chiropractors because it was hard for me originally. But I mean, it is something we do have to be careful with because um, again, it is it is one profession. We're all one team. Don't get cocky. Yeah, don't get too cocky. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about your uh, early practice experience. Well, I came out of school and uh, I worked as an independent contractor in another chiropractor's office uh, for about uh, seven or eight months, and then. 
Um, I actually was going to buy a agrostic pra- practice in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and um, I left this independent contractorship with the thoughts of doing that. And of course, one thing led to another, and that actually fell apart. And so I was left stuck in limbo. Um, I was about to get married at the time and didn't have a job, didn't have a place to practice. I was living in, I went back to actually with my father's house uh, while I was trying to figure out what to do. And uh, we came to Dothan, Alabama to visit my wife's uh, aunt and uncle. And just uh, driving around, um, lo and behold, I just really liked the town, the city. It was a neat place. And I just started uh uh, just kind of cold, just walking up to different chiropractors and going into their offices and meeting them and um, just asking them about Dothan and uh, also asking that I was uh, possibly considering, you know, um, purchasing, purchasing a practice or going as an independent contractor. And I went into this one particular practice, which was a really nice practice, um, and met the chiropractor. And lo and behold, this guy had just decided that he had to sell his practice because of health problems. And um, one thing led to another, and I ended up buying his practice for $70,000. Mm. And it was very scary from the standpoint that it was a, uh, this guy was probably about five foot nine, 320 pounds. Mm. And he was a full spine chiropractor. And I had not done that stuff since student clinic. And I didn't know how to do side posture or rotaries. Mm. And yet I'm buying this practice full of all these Alabama rednecks, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, Lord, how am I going to pull this off? Yeah. And But I went ahead and just uh, decided, hey, I'm going to make it happen. And I did. And it was amazing um, how easy it was to transition to practice. I did have to do some of the racking and cracking, um, which was terrifying <laughs> to me. Um you know, again, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm thinking, every night I went to bed thinking I'm going to get sued. Mm. That was, uh, I was just laying in her sleep. And I'll tell you a funny little story. I had um, the, uh, this, this husband and wife were patients. And, of course, I was, you know, he was, he stayed for a month and, wa- and followed me around and, you know, watched me do this manipulation stuff. And there was this husband and wife um, that I had, you know, tried to adjust, attempted to. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to, I was at the grocery store with my wife, and I saw the husband. And I said, um, I said, hi, Richard, how you doing? Uh, he says, hey, I'm doing okay. I said, how's Brenda, his wife? He said, Doc, she ain't doing too good. <laughs> I said, what happened? He says, well, you went and cracked the neck and locked the kilter. She ain't doing so good. <laughs> And, of course, this is in a store in front of everybody, so I just <laughs> said to myself right there, you know, Lord, kill me now, please, kill me now, because I do not want to live anymore. Yeah. You know? So you have to understand the way my mind worked um, back then, especially now, how um, humiliating that was. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't even think of anything worse someone could do to me. Yeah. You know? So I said, none of this, I just went to the office, I said, all right, because he was going to stay for two or three months, I think, and follow me around. And I said, listen, listen, I, here's your money. I'm fine. You can leave. I said, I'm taking over. So what I did is I put up a, because um, I had some film that I had taken from my other practice, and I had some real dramatic pre- and post-X-rays, and I would put them up on a view box in the room, and when the patient would come in, I would say, Mrs. Uh, Johnson, I said, listen, 
Dr. So-and-so, he's done a great job taking care of you all these years. And I said, but I have a different way that I think that I can help uh, give you uh, an even improved adjustment that will stay in place and hold for a longer period of time. And I would just show her the x-rays, explain about it. And, and most of the patients, before I even could finish explaining, they would just stop me and say, you're the doctor. Whatever you say I need, just tell me. It would be just that easy. Mm-hmm. And what I did is I just took a nasal vertex on everybody. Mm-hmm. They, most all of them had lateral cervicals. Even though they were a bit old, I just, you know, to make it easy, I just, so I was just taking nasal vertexes every day, all throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, we switched them over, and it was just amazing. I still, but just about every day in my practice, I still see patients that um, were from that first year when mm-hmm. I converted them over. Um, you know, and these patients, and I had doctors come through and follow me through my office many times over the years, and and I'll always have the patients tell them, you know, the story about their experience with upper cervical compared to full spine manipulation, and you know, of course, the differences in improved health. But the main thing is the ability to hold an adjustment, and that's just such a, you know, it's such a novel concept that is to me, it's chiropractic philosophy 101, but most chiropractors just don't seem to get it. Yeah. You know, the, it's, the adjustment is not what helps the patient. And I'm obviously preaching to the choir when I say this, but is the holding of the adjustment that helps the patient. If it's about what we do, then we need to do this procedure every day, right. all throughout the day, constantly. It's about the patient's body uh, be able to maintain homeostasis and optimize as full potential. And the, the, obviously, the, you know, our vitalistic philosophy, um, you know, teaches us that you know it is the patients healing themselves. It's not the chiropractor healing them. Obviously. Did you uh, not experience a significant amount of attrition when uh, you tried to convert these people over? Not too much. Not too much. Um, I, I probably lost as many when I was manipulating, mm. you know, when I was, as I did when I switched over. As a matter of fact, I lost more that way, mm. um, you know, for various reasons. I really did not. Um, it was really amazing to me um, how easy it was. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, there's some of, a lot of, most of them, it was a quick transition. Some of it was, you know, a slower transition. But um, I know, all I knew is that I wanted to get away from this, um, you know, racking and cracking on the neck. I just terrified me. And, I, and again, I say that not to denigrate other chiropractors because I know that's what they do. And and, and I, once maybe a year, I'll have a patient come in that wants that, and I will tell them I don't do that. And I said, well, listen, I said, um, you know, it's not that I can't do it, but I said, listen, let me get you to a chiropractor that does this, and this is what they do day in and day out. They're good at it. And I says, and I'll refer you over there, and, and that's great. And, and so that's what I say. It's, it's just, it doesn't, it's, it's not for me. It's not that it does not work. That would be foolish to say that because yeah. it does provide some benefit. Um, and, 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 the, and the studies bear that out. Um, are there differences between um, upper cervical specific adjusting and, and manipulation? I think so. And I think there is evidence to bear that out as well. But, it, but in other words, they don't have to be wrong so that we are right. Right. Okay, we can both agree to disagree on certain things, and we can kind of go our own way. 
tell us about uh, your experience of uh, being an author and writing your uh, your first. I say your first book, but it really started out being two volumes, didn't it? Yeah, it really goes back to chiropractic school when I really got hot and heavy into this upper cervical stuff. Now, keep in mind, I had visited various other techniques and, and uh, many different upper um, chiropractic techniques and offices from you know clinical kinesiology, applied kinesiology, Gonstead, SOT, um, Pierce, I mean, many, many different procedures, Thompson, whatnot. And uh, so I was looking at the differences, and I remember this the CK, um, AK type um, chiropractor, I remember him telling me, because I asked him, what do you think about upper cervical care? And I remember he told me, he says, you know, there is no more significance for the atlas than there is for T10. You know, and I was probably in third quarter at this point, and I thought to myself, you know, I know he's been in practice a long time, I said, but I've been in chiropractic school long enough to know that that's a foolish statement. Yeah. You know, that just doesn't make any sense, you know. So anyway, um, so what happened was we had various instructors at school that would make uh, disparaging remarks against upper cervical care and uh, other students that, you know, they get into their motion palpation club or whatever club they're in, and they would make their little comments about upper cervical. And so I just went out. I, I'd seen clinically the stuff really seems to work. <clears throat> And then um, I just wanted to look at it, you know, analytically. So I said, you know, I want to start reading stuff. So I just kept reading research, and I kept, you know, anything I get my hands on in the library, and I kept collecting this stuff. And what I figured out early on was that if I would read a book or read a journal article and I would go through and I highlight the key points, you know, you can't go back and keep rereading stuff. So what I would do is I would take all the highlighted key points from all these studies and books, and I would retype it. And I had it in originally in a word processor, um, one of those typewriters that also was a word processor. You had a little disk you would slide in there, you know, the Smith Corona mm-hmm. back in the days before computers. And I would compile all this stuff, and I would type it and type it and type it. And this just kept going on and on and on. I would collect and collect and collect. And um, my, my, my friends, because, uh, you know, they would make fun of me because we would go out um, – you know, every Thursday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, and uh, and then Friday nights we would go play basketball. And so I had a good social life, but I would work on this stuff all the time. And sometimes they would want to go out, and I would uh, say, "No, I'm going to work on organizing my literature." Hmm. So that be, that became a big running joke in chiropractic school about Kirk's organizing his literature. He can't go out with us. And uh, one time on that little Smith Corona, I made a mistake and I deleted a file that was probably, you know, I don't know, maybe a hundred pages of type stuff I had done. And I just remember at that time I just could have, I about had a meltdown. But then I thought to myself, okay, I can go ahead and sit there and dwell on this thing and go crazy, or I can start typing it over. Mm-hmm. And so I just. I remember that night, I stayed up all night typing and typing and typing, not thinking about it. Just like put my shoulder to the grindstone and just kept typing and typing mm. and typing. Just to get the, I knew I had to get it done as quick as I can because it was just going to eat me alive. And I eventually got it done. But it all started with that. I remember there was a um, DAC bar at Life that made a statement in um, class. He said that, you know, reading x-rays for pathology, that's what's important. That's what makes you a doctor. Not 
just manipulating. He said, you can teach a monkey how to manipulate. Mm -hmm. And I remember that. I said, that was the last straw. And this was a very powerful instructor at school. And I remember raising my hand in the middle of class, and he acknowledged me. And I stood up, and I said, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I said, I tell you what, I don't really appreciate you um, denigrating my profession by saying that. I said, first of all, there is a difference between manipulating and adjusting. I said, adjusting is a, a science and it is an art and a clinical skill that uh, far sur surpasses reading these x-rays, you know. And, of course, I went on my little, <laughs> my little tantrum, which uh, basically he told me to stay after class which I knew I was in trouble then, but I was just very ballsy back then. Yeah. Um, and, of course, a couple of students kind of hung around class to find out what was going to happen to me. And he basically um, just, uh, you know, of course, he didn't like that I called him out in class yeah. in front of everybody. And so I did. I apologized for that, and I said, but I stuck to my guns. I said, I, I said and I gave my argument. I said, you're talking about something different than um, what I, I mean, we're not comparing apples to apples. I said, twisting and popping someone's neck um, is not the same as precisely uh, adjusting and correcting a spine. I said, that's a difficult procedure to do. And I said, I don't know what you do. I said, but that's what I'm going to do. And so I become quickly the upper cervical guy on campus. And, um, and of course, I had to be an apologist for the work. So I had to have as much um, to support my physicians. And that's where this came from. So when I went out into practice, I just continued this. And it just developed and developed. It was really just for myself. This was just my own ammo, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then I, it just kind of, I kept shaping it, shaping it, shaping it, and it turned into chapters and organized it a little further. And then people wanted this stuff from me. And they, they wanted my stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I don't want to give it, I don't want to give it away. I'll give different parts of it away. Yeah. And then I said, well, listen, I said, and they said, oh, I'll buy it from you. I said, well, I'm not going to sell it until it's something, you know, that's worth to sell. And then so I knew that I had to really set out to um, produce something that was worthwhile. And it eventually um, came out to be the uh, the two-volume set, which I'll tell you something interesting about that. One of the most, you know, talking about my experiences in football and, and you know, all the hard work we put into that, I'll have to say the most painful physical thing I ever went through in my life was what happened right before I finished the two-volume set. And what, what the deal was, they had a big NUCA con I think it was a NUCA conference coming up. And I had to get these books done so that I could present them at the conference. And I thought I had plenty of time. And keep in mind, I was producing these things and printing them myself, and I was having them bound and organized and, and whatnot. And it was just an incredible task. Mm -hmm. Long story short, what I had to do to finish is I stayed up two nights out of three with no sleep. And I keep in mind, I saw patients the next day. And I probably shouldn't admit this because um, cause this was years ago. But it was what happened was, and I used to be very hyper and have a lot of energy. And I would get through the day, see my patients, and I would work on the book. And I, I stayed up. The whole idea, I was going to go home and sleep. That was my idea. But then next thing you notice, three o'clock in the morning I'm nowhere near being finished mm -hmm. and then so um, the next day uh, you know I'm like oh gosh it's not worth going to bed so I just stayed up and so remember the staff came in in the morning you know before eight o'clock and I'm just I'm going buddy I am just 
ready to take on the world. You know, I'm full of energy. Um, I'm still working on the book, and I'm sorting, and everything's all over the place. And, and so now the patients are coming in, all right? And I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready to go. I'm adjusting. Everything's good. Well, then about 9.30 in the morning, all of a sudden something happens. <laughs> something jumped on my back, and I don't know what it is, but it's not good. And then um, I realize, okay, I'm in trouble. Okay, so I'm, I'm just still pushing through, and I'm pushing through. And so I eventually kind of got to the point where I would have to get a patient in and, and, and just get them to lay down the prone position. Mm-hmm. And I would just stand and let them talk, and I would stand over them and put my hands on them and just close my eyes while I'm listening. <laughs> and just that five that ten seconds would give me enough energy to go, ah. and then I could go. Oh, man. And I kind of did this throughout the day, and I made it through the day somehow, and then I worked till late that night again, but then I had to go home. And so I did go to sleep, and I, I did sleep for, um, I forget, I, I got some sleep. But I came back, and I did the same thing all over again. I worked all through the night, and I didn't sleep again. And again, I mean, I, don't, I didn't sleep for not even, you know, um, two minutes. Wow. I didn't sleep at all. And so, you know, really going through that, I mean, you, you, when you don't sleep like that, it is a pain. It's, it's physically painful. Uh-huh. And uh, so that was pretty tough. But it reminds me of this interesting case I had um, last year. Um, this girl um, she comes to me, and she says, uh, I can't sleep because I literally cannot sleep. And her mother had been a patient. And so lo and behold, what happened with this girl was um, for the past two years, she was um, sleeping. Um, I have all of it on tape because I've, I've filmed her her deal here. She was basically sleeping um, just a matter of uh, a few hours in a week total. I mean, she just couldn't sleep. She said she just lay there at night all night long and just cannot sleep. And this had been going on for two years, and she was, you know, flunking. And she's in college. And she was, uh, you know, getting bad grades, and she comes from a very wealthy family. Um, they could afford anything she needed. Um, she'd been to all these medical specialists. They had tested everything on her, and they couldn't find what was wrong with her. And uh, so she even, you know, had tried the drugs, and it wouldn't work. So she wasn't taking anything when she came to see me. And we went ahead and adjusted her, and I remember her contact was way up in the Atlas Fossa. It was one of the highest contacts I've ever seen. And it was very difficult to uh, contact and adjust, and I decided to use the handheld instrument because that was going to be the easiest way to adjust her. And I adjusted her, and I posted her, and lo and behold, I actually increased the atlas laterality. Mm. So that wasn't good. Mm. So, But the good thing was I knew about it, and I knew I had to readjust her. I had to change. I had to be more careful with my contact. So I readjusted her. And so anyway... She goes home. She comes in for the next visit, and I said, how did it go? She says, well, I didn't sleep that night. You adjusted me. She says, but the next day, I slept for about two or three hours in the middle of the day, mm-hmm. and that was a big deal to her. So I adjust, she was out again, and I adjusted her again, and after that, literally, she began to sleep every night. Mm-hmm. And when I saw her the next time, she said she was sleeping eight hours a night mm-hmm. like it was normal. And this went on uh, for many months, and just her life was now normal. Mm-hmm. And uh, she went back to college up in Birmingham, and I referred her to um, 
Dr. Mark Myers up there, and he's you know taking over her care and still taking care of her, and uh, just kind of a neat story because it's just a ima- I can't imagine anybody just not sleeping like that. Yeah, and uh, so it's an interesting case. Uh, you know, I found uh, that there a couple of. Uh, Conditions that always seem to respond to uh, upper cervical work, like that you could almost—it was a no-brainer. As headaches and sleeping disorders, uh, not that everything would clear up, but those were two conditions. And the sleeping disorders always seemed to be the most dramatic. And I was like, man, I wish there were more people out there with sleeping disorders that you know I could uh, uh, have in here. Yes. Yeah, it is interesting, but you know we're working on an area that's right below the brainstem, mm-hmm. and uh, of course you know the uh, chapter 15 of the new uh, book, Orthospinology Procedures, and chapter three of the first book um, is where we go into neurology, and of course the the new book, I think chapter 15, I've updated the neurology section uh, to really explain, and I think it's you know. It's, I think it's the best thing I've seen. I mean, I know I wrote it. I'll tell you a story about writing that uh, chapter. Um, To finish, to make my deadline on that chapter with the publisher, I literally, I had to, um, of course, you know, I'd be working on it for months, but I finally, I mean, I had to get it done. And to get it finished, I did finish it. Um, But I had to stay, I stayed up till 5.30 in the morning to get it done. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I finally finished it, saved it and was able to send it off to the, the because you know you emailed it to um, uh, the publisher um, I remember finally I got my car and I drove home and as I was driving home you know every I see all these people driving to work you know <laughs> I'm going home to sleep and uh, but it was something I pulled it off and I just kind of I, I could have stopped I could have stopped and been happy with it at you know midnight but it wasn't right you know, and it, again, it's those life lessons that I learned uh, working for my dad. I learned playing football for Richard Kennedy that, you know, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way. Mm-hmm. And you do what's right. And it doesn't matter. I have chiropractors that tell me, oh, yeah, I'd love to do upper cervical work. But, you know, it's too difficult. Mm-hmm. It takes too much time. It's too much this. It's too much that. And I said, you know what? First of all, it's not too difficult. It's not too complicated to um, implement your practice okay if you if you are if you go by it in the step-by-step process and you learn it I said but you know what if it is so what you do what's right if you believe if this is the way you're getting adjusted in your heart of hearts you know this is the way you want you and your family to be corrected then guess what you do what it takes to do what's right it doesn't matter if it's hard on you because it doesn't have to be, okay? But you figure it out. But don't, you know, don't justify in your mind that you want to go ahead and do something halfway um, just because it'll make you money. Because, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do in chiropractic to make yourself money if money is your goal. And money's never been my goal. But you can be rewarded handsomely in chiropractic if you, if you provide the care. You know, one of the benefits is that um, you know, doing this type of work. I mean, I have not advertised, you know, since, you know, my gosh, probably my second year in practice. And uh, and yet, you know, you can have a referral practice. And, you know, of course, sometimes it gets overwhelming. Um, but if you look at most uh, upper cervical doctors that have been around for a while, um, they do, they're well above average um, in new patients. Um, compared to um, you know general chiropractic practices, and I, 
and I even did a study that was presented at a, at a conference years ago where we did a survey where we um, of 100 practices, almost 100 practices, upper cervical practices, and we compared the data to the data that the National Board of Chiropractic Examiners gets on the standard practice trends and you know how many patients they see, how many new patients, you know this, that, and the other thing. And it did bear out that um, upper cervical doctors do see more new patients, and actually they see actually more patients per week too. Hmm. Um, we do, but the thing is, upper cervical practice they don't tend to see they they um, they see different people right every week. They don't see the same ones over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So again, an upper cervical doctor that sees 50 patients a day is seeing a lot more patients than a um, than many. Uh, manipulative, manipulative chiropractors that are seeing 80 patients a day or yeah. 100 patients a day. Right. So, how did you get your uh, publisher? Uh, uh, Lippincott Williams is the publisher of the uh, second textbook, correct? Yes. How did you uh, get uh, them interested in uh, publishing your book? Well, you know, um, luck had part of it, part of it to do with it. Um, you know, the thing is. You know, when I decided I was going to go after a publisher, I realized that, you know, first of all, developing the book was very costly, very costly. Um, and I don't mean just in my time, I mean, you know, in actual money, because I had to pay for the right to reprint all these portions of these different research papers and books and whatnot. Um, and because that's, the book was going to be unique and different, mm-hmm. which, you know, of course, there's editorial comments and. Uh, but there was actual the actual portions of these papers and books that are in there as well because I thought that was unique because it's really designed as a, a tool to be used in research studies and um, you know and doing your own research so you didn't have to get all these papers so and and also uh, the, the photographs and whatnot so anyway it was costly so I decided to self-publish initially so I can get my investment back you know for what I put out because I knew once I went to a publisher. That you know, there goes the profit. Right. Know? Um, the uh, the first textbook um, costs one hundred and fifty dollars. I make eleven dollars off that book. Mm. If it's sold internationally, I make five dollars and fifty cents. Mm. The new book, which costs one hundred and fifteen dollars, I make about four dollars off that book. Oh, so there's really you don't do it for the money. I mean, it's a joke to think about doing it that way. But what happened with when I decided to go with a publisher, I decided, well, if I'm going to do this and hand my baby over, I want to go for the top dog. You know, I want to go with the biggest, best publisher. And Lippincott, Williams, and Wilkins, along with Elsevier, are the two big guys on the block. And uh, so I basically, uh, you know, went, did some research, went to the Internet, and, and uh, found a pub- found an editor. And now the, the, quite, the, the whole trick is how do you get to the editor? Um, I think I had written some letters. Um, long story short, I basically finally got one on the phone. And uh, I had uh, touched base with him and sent him my book, you know, what I had self-published. And when I got a chance to get him on the phone, basically I had a good pitch. And that's what it came down to. Because you have a very – these guys get hit with a lot of different um, project ideas – and basically, when I got my opportunity, I stepped up to the plate, and like I said, I had a good pitch. And uh, I was intriguing with what I said to him. And what he did is he sent the book out for review, and which is kind of interesting because he let me even pick the reviewers. 
and I think maybe they had some of their own reviewers too. And and when the book came back, it had come back with what he had said was some of the best reviews they had ever had hmm. on a book project. So they were very impressed, and one thing led to another. They flew me to um, Baltimore to uh, have meetings with um, the editors and uh, the marketing staff and uh, the whole big deal up there. I mean, because this, this, this is a huge company. I mean, they're worldwide. They're headquarters, I think, in um, Europe and, of course, Philadelphia and Baltimore and all over the place. And uh, it was a great thing. And they put a lot of money into the production of the book. Um, and uh, it came out well. It was uh, very difficult to do, of course. And, um, you know, I, I, I've said it many times, I think, uh, you know, when I, when I took on the second project with my co-author, Dr. Bo Rochester, um, I knew it was not the time for me to jump into something like that. Uh, but I knew that my window of opportunity was closing because to get another book deal is, um, is, is first of all, get a book deal is very difficult. To get a second one really was going to be dependent upon how well the first book did. It wasn't. They thought they were wanting it to sell 10,000 copies and five years, and I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way that's going to happen. But of course, I wasn't going to say anything. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a, a good initial push, but then it started to taper out, and I knew it was going to probably continue to taper down because we the whole thing was to get it into the, the school, the chiropractic schools, mm. and then it could do well, but it, it wasn't that wasn't happening. Um, it was recommended in certain schools, but... Um, so I knew I had one chance to jump on this and really push to sell them on this idea because I knew that book was what I've said it was the how of upper cervical no excuse me it was the why of upper cervical care I knew we need a book on the how and of course orthospinology being what I do that's what I wanted to get done Nuka had their own book the self-published book which was great I knew we had to get our own so long story short um, I was able to pull it off we got the book deal, and of course, um, I was able to get Dr. Bo Rochester, who was tremendous as a co-author. Um, it's, you know, it, if you get a co-author, you have to realize it's someone that, you know, uh, you have to be very picky because it's it, it's it's a tremendous amount of work, and it's got to be someone that you can count on, that is going to do their part, that's going to make their deadlines, that's going to push through. Uh, Dr. Bo is a, another big former football player, and. And he knows all about, you know, doing what it takes, no matter what. You just do what it takes. Yeah. And uh, and he did. And he came through, and he did a tremendous job. And uh, and I think the book is something that we're very proud of. And, you know, if, if we die tomorrow, I think we've left our mark mm. on chiropractic history. We've left a legacy behind for the younger doctors. Uh, I say younger. I'm 40 years old now, but I guess I'm kind of transitioning to the older doctor category um, but that's that's how it worked um, it, it's it's luck and also being prepared to seize the opportunity yeah. is there for you I want to go to some questions that uh, doctors submitted to me to uh, ask you um, following right along with talking about the books uh, and you've kind of covered some of this uh, already but uh, with all the books you write and the seminars you speak at the research study running your practice coaching your son's team uh, baseball team and uh, being football and basketball too by the way oh mm -hmm. uh, what are your secrets to preventing burnout 
You know, I don't have a secret. And uh, as a matter of fact, it's something uh, that um, I've struggled with. And it's funny because I remember when I first got my disability policy many years ago when I was first in practice, um, you know, you know, there was um, all this talk about what, what, do, what do doctors, you know, get on disability for. He said he was talking about stress-related disorders and burnout and all that. And I said, ah, oh. I remember telling him, I don't have to worry about that. I says, I love what I do. I said, I'm going to do this till I die. And I said, that's a joke. And he says, well, that's not what the, you know, the, the statistics show. And, uh, and I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. So I just discounted it altogether. And, uh, but I think something, you know, a lot of things happen. Um, I've been very lucky that I've neglected my practice um, any, from a focus standpoint for many years because of these books. Because you know you you go to you go to work early in the morning with the idea of okay I'm going to work on a book and then I have to see all these patients and then I got to get done and I got to work on the book again mm-hmm. you know and, uh, and 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 fortunately the first book was done while my youngest son was was young my first son was young and before I got really involved in the coaching part so I had a little extra time um, but you, your practice almost is, is in your way. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not my focus. It's just something I have to kind of get done so I can get to this other stuff. And it's kind of um, a means to an end. You know, people, a lot of people won't understand that when I when I say that. They don't understand why would you be that way. Mm. But you just have to understand what it takes to do to pull something like this off. Um, it is not about sitting down and typing out a bunch of words. You know, it's why I'm enjoying this other project about writing this, this football book. Um, because it's more of a, you know, I, I don't have to worry about everything. I, I don't have to back up um, everything that I say. Right. So with with uh, statistics and data and whatnot. But in the process, and when I, I, I touched on it earlier, when I come up with the, with the new book, when I took on that project, I knew it wasn't the right time for me um, psychologically and physically. I knew I needed more of a break, but I knew I had to get it done. You know, otherwise, it wasn't going to happen. And... In the process of the staying up the late hours, because what you, you want to try to avoid is taking away too much family time. So what you have to do is you got to do it early in the morning and late at night. Um, I used to, um, I'm just now recently getting back to working on Thursdays, like today. Um, but for the longest time, I had to basically give up working on Thursdays because I would have to stay up till you know two o'clock in the morning every Wednesday night working on the book and then I couldn't wake I couldn't get out of bed the next day so I had to basically take off Thursdays and then I would use that day to work on the book and and whatnot but in the process of doing all this for this long period of time it's it's like almost like it damages I feel like it's damaged a part of me Mm -hmm. um and uh it's something that you know it's a little bit of a struggle to do things I, I have you know, of course, you know, you get older, too, but I, I still have a lot of energy, but I don't have quite the energy I used to and the drive that I used to have about doing everything. Mm-hmm. And I have to watch myself now. I notice that I have to pace myself. I can't say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. I can't jump on a plane and go here, there, and everywhere all the time. I am going to San Francisco here next month because um, and having meetings with Dr. Klum and other upper cervical doctors because of the Diplomate program because that's an important thing. But I know that's something that really I kind of don't need to do. But that's an important opportunity, you know, and I think I need to be there. But 
So it is something. It, it's it's something that I love. I still enjoy chiropractic. I love what I do, um, but it's a struggle sometimes. I think I could not do. I cannot be a chiropractor if I didn't get good results. I can tell you that because I could not handle dealing with coming to a practice every day and dealing with people complaining all day long. Yeah, that's something I, I just to the point in life I can do it. I just you know it would be that'd be a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Um, and of course I do take on a lot of cases. You know, this morning I had you know patients. You know, one lady here just starting up. She's crying, and another one here is having to be helped carried into the office and. And I do take a lot of complicated cases. One patient with Strumpel's disease, with not not Marie Strumpel's, but Strumpel's disease was a genetic problem where she's in a wheelchair and she can't hold her head straight and she slumps and she just like you know handling a, a doll mm. basically and she can't hardly talk and um, you know and, and, and another guy had six back surgeries and he can't even lay on a table to be mm. checked. Another lady I saw yesterday she has polio. She has a, you know, it's on the crutches, and I can't even do a leg check on her, obviously. So, of course, we use instrumentation. So, I mean, we do see a lot of these, you know, cases, obviously. But it is um, something that, you know, stress used to not get to me. I could handle anything. And it's something that I have to be careful. I know if I can't handle stress like I used to. And so it's something that I'm working through, but I don't want to come across like I've got it all figured out because I don't. Yeah. But the thing that I really do... Um, love you know my hobbies i don't golf i don't hunt i don't fish i don't do a lot of stuff i did as a kid because i don't have time there's physically no way to do it because the thing i love to do is i love um again i'm a sports fanatic so i love to coach basketball i love to coach baseball i love to coach uh, football even though i know people think it's awful for kids to play football you know um that's another discussion that we don't have time to get into um but uh, one thing I'm very proud of, you know, is um, I've received a lot of different chiropractic awards, um, and and I'm and I'm, I'm not that I'm not proud of those, but probably one of the most proud award I got was uh, a couple of years ago when I got the Ronnie Ronnie Mendham um, Coach of the Year award in the city for the top football coach in the city, mm. you know, and it was a big deal in the paper and all that, and you know, and it's just I have to have these diversions um, to actually, you know kind of release some stress, I guess, in coaching. Um, another proud moment, it was last year on a team, um, I had probably the only team that I can think of in the history of this city that had only one loss in, in the baseball league, that a team that only had two all-star players. The second place team had four all-star players. The third place team had five, and I only had two. And uh, it was just a, a great success story of, of this of a lot of average players just all working together as a team. Mm. And and that's what I kind of, um, you know, that's that's kind of my saving grace is that I have these other things that I can fall back on. You know, I got a, my 14-year-old son is a super athlete. Um, you know, he runs a 4.740 and has a 30-inch vertical jump, and he's 5'11", and, mm. you know, he just loves playing everything. He's good at everything. You know, he's a better athlete than I ever was, and, and he just loves it. And I, I love... Um, you know, participating in it, but now I'm to the point. Now I'm enjoying watching him because now he's playing for his school. You know, of course, he's just an eighth grader. But um, and then of course, I have a seven seven year old, and you know, he's uh, going to be a great little star in his own right. So I enjoy that. I mean, it's it's just something that I love to do. 
um, the balance is something that you have to keep striving for. I think the thing is you have to, again, as I said earlier, you can have anything in life. You can do anything in life, but you can't have everything and you can't do everything. Mm. And, and that's the deal is that you have to know what to eliminate out of your life because you, you got to have time for your family. you got to take time to go to church. you got to do all these things. And, and we slip up all the time. I do. And uh, it's just, you know, striving towards that balance. And, uh, again, like if you're going to take on these other projects, you got to figure out, okay, I, I just got to suck it up. and i got to work late at night. i got to work late night hours, you know, on it when everybody goes to bed. You know, or I got to get up early in the morning. I got to work. You know, you know, before I go to work, things like that. You know, you just have to be creative. I have worked through lunch. Um, I can probably count on two hands how many times I have left my office and went to eat somewhere at lunch um, Monday through Wednesday um, for the past, gosh, ten years. Wow. You know, and that's just that, that's how I get things. I just work through lunch. You know, every day. So, and it's just something you get used to. But then again, I don't work on Friday afternoons, and I don't work on Thursday afternoons, and I don't work on a lot of Thursdays at all. But, um, you know, having off on Friday afternoon and Thursday afternoon really is a blessing. Do you think that the upper cervical community is on the path to true unification? And if so, is the upper cervical evolution and the upper cervical health centers of America group responsible? You know, I hope so, and I think so. Um, I really like what they're doing with the Upper Cervical Evolution Group. Um, you know, we try to do a lot with the AUCCO, and uh, there's been some progress made with that organization, but we've just kind of got to a point where not a lot's happening, and I think the, the people, the doctors um, with um, the Upper Cervical Evolution are movers and shakers. I mean, they're the type of people that are getting things done and I've went to both of the evolutions and was very impressed. You know, I've been preaching this forever, that we must have unity based on oneness, not sameness. Um, you know, if you do Atlas Orthogonal or Advanced Orthogonal or Nuka or Blair or Knee Chest, you know what? You don't need to do orthospinology because I'm sure you're already doing great work with what you're doing. And you know what? I may do things a little bit differently than you in certain areas where I probably I disagree with the way you're doing something, but you know what, that's okay. We can agree to disagree, and we can respect our differences, and that's what's important because what I have seen um, you know, in history and in present history, one of the biggest problems we have is the egos, and uh, my gosh, we... Um, you know, to be a chiropractor, you have to be unique and different. Okay, you're, you're not mainstream. You know, if you're mainstream, you'd have went into, you know, be a medical doctor or something in the <clears throat> medical health field. So you're kind of a little bit of a maverick. So now you take a person like that, and now you're saying, okay, now that person's going to be an upper cervical chiropractor. So now he's a maverick within a group of mavericks. Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of attracts a crowd of people that are very, um, it's a mixed bag because you got people that are, are, are very, um, very uh, stubborn and very much stuck to their principles and not wanting to compromise, you know, for no reason. And also people that are free thinkers, you know, um, very talented doctors, I think, um, but sometimes very difficult.
difficult to work with mm. because everybody's right, you yeah. know. And and uh, and and how do you work that out? Well, you know, we're we're educated, intelligent, you know, doctors, and 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 we 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 ought to make it happen. We can make it happen, and we need to make it happen because um, no one group can do it. No one organization is big enough, first of all, um, that has enough political clout um, to get it done. Um, no one group has all the ideas, the research ideas, and uh, the, um, the, the motivation drive to get it done. But if we come together and pool our resources, we have a chance to get this thing to pull it off. We have a chance. There's still an uphill battle, all, this, uh, all that's fighting against us. We have a chance. And, of course... What I've been preaching on is, of course, the practice-based study that I've been desperately trying to recruit doctors um, because uh, right now we have about 600 patients in the study. We need 1,000. And it's so simple. It's, it's just doctors taking 10 new patients in a row and having them fill out some questionnaires after two weeks of care. It's almost that simple. And, of course, we're attracting doctors from all the different techniques. And I will have to say that <clears throat> I've gotten tremendous support from um, advanced um, orthogonal, Dr. Stan Pierce, mm -hmm. um, uh, Gosh, uh, Nuka, and Dr. Bobby Goodman have just been super. Uh, the Blair Organization, where Dr. John Hilpish, Dr. Tom Forrest, my buddy Dr. Drew Hall, uh, they've been uh, so helpful. Uh, of course, obviously, worked with Spinology, our president, Dr. Ken Umber, um, which I'll have. To, I just want to make a little note. Dr. Ken Umber is uh, probably, you know, he's always been our best teacher of our work, and I, I think probably the best brains of our work is Dr. Bo Rochester. He's probably got the best mind. Um, and of course, we have, you know, of course, Dr. You know, Julie Mayer Hunt, excellent with pediatrics. Uh, you know, Dr. Mayer, Dr. Steve Umber, you know, great with um, their practice management and their professional uh, ability to, you know, conduct this work. Um, you know, and of course, you know, uh, Dr. Bart um, Patzer, you know, has got the largest, probably one of the largest upper cervical practices in the world. Hmm. Uh, tremendous guy, great guy down there in Austin, Texas. And uh, Dr. Max Waddell is on our board and got a great big practice in Texas as well. Big help getting our work out in, uh, out there in the Southwest. Um, you know, just on and on. Um, but anyway, uh, let's see, who am I leaving out? Um, knee chest, my buddy, Dr. Rob Kessinger. Oh, you know, again, Rob and I have been friends for years now. And I remember when I was in school having this, um, you know, this little attitude about knee chest doctors and Dr. Kale and just looking down on them. And, and, and you know, just such a sign of just immaturity you know, on my part. You know, and, and just coming to find out the tremendous work that these guys and gals do. They just do super work, and the research bears it out. And uh, just have so much respect for what they're doing. And Dr. Rob Kessner, he's always been such a great support. And Dr. B.J. Kale, he's also been helping as well. Um, you know, uh, it's along the way, you get some disappointments. Um, you know, unfortunately, Still, I think there's some that just, you know, it, 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 it sometimes it has to be about them, you know, and mm -hmm. they can't see the big picture. And it's so sad because um, ultimately, you know, I know with the work that I do, I know I'm, I'm good at this work. You know, I do, 
I adjust well, <clears throat> I get great results. And um, but you know what? If I'm the best at this work, we're in trouble because I'm good, but I know what I do, and also I know what I don't do. And if I'm all there is, then you know, good luck because there's got to be someone better. And 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 really, I've said this many times that you know, you know, listen, um, I, I don't have any interest in being the guy, the leader, the best. You know, I'll be happy to be a follower. I just want to be a part of a successful team. I don't have to be the star. And I want to be. I don't want to be the star. I, don't, I just don't want to. Um, but I, I just wish we all had the attitude that let's have the best team. Let's have the best success as a whole, as opposed to worrying about you know just ourselves. Because I think a lot of people get that impression about me because of the books and. And the other stuff that it's about me, and I could just prompt, tell you right up front, it ain't. Mm. You know, it ain't. You know, not to use poor English there. You know, it's um, I'll, I'll be more than happy to just stay in the background and just be a. I'm effort. I think I'd be more productive if I was that way because I could focus on a lot of behind the scenes um, activities, and that's why it's, it, in orthospinology we're so lucky to have Dr. Ken Umber um, be our leader now, and he's doing a, a better job than I did. And uh, and also it takes pressure off of me that I can focus on other things. But I do appreciate the leaders of these other upper cervical um, groups um, and, and, and pushing and supporting the uh, the research study because we were paying a, a Ph.D. $4,000 to uh, do the statistics and help with the writing of the paper. And it's going to be a big deal. The preliminary results are very promising. The study basically looks at the efficacy and the safety of upper cervical care which um, in this day and age, um, you know, uh, is so critically important. Who is your Atlas chiropractor? Well, you know, um, you know, whenever I get a chance to go to Atlanta and seminars, of course, obviously Dr. Ken Umber is the main one that adjusts me, but many different of doctors on our board, Dr. Rochester and, and Dr. Hunt and others have adjusted me. But the one who probably sees me most consistently is Dr. Greg Havanek, who practiced with me for years, and he's actually retired, even though he's still kind of young, but he still lives in this area. And he basically just kind of goes to college. He just goes to college all the time. He just takes foreign language courses and business classes, and he just, that's just his thing. He just likes going to college. But he lives in the same town, and so he comes over and checks me and adjusts me. And I've, uh, I've been adjusted by many different. I've been up to Alexander City. Dr. Kevin James does a really good job adjusting me, um, and uh, so uh, you know, it's. I've been down. Uh, you know, I've seen many different. I've had NUCA adjustments, atlas orthogonal adjustments. <clears throat> um, you know, obviously orthospinology is the main one. Mm -hmm. Probably, um, you know, some of the best adjustments I've ever had were grostic hand adjustments. Hmm. Um, I know back in the days when I would, could hold for six months at a time hmm. was when Dr. Tom Burnett was my chiropractor. Of course, he's since passed away um, back, I think, in 94. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that was probably when I did my best. But I still do fine. But, you know, I just don't hold quite as long as I used to. Yeah. What historical occurrence in chiropractic do you consider to be the most negative significance, and what occurrence do you consider to be uh, the most positive significance? 
I guess oh, what he's asking is what is the what do you see as the darkest moment in chiropractic, yeah. and what's the brightest moment? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I gather the question is just um, picking them out. Wow. Well, to me personally, the darkest moment in the profession um, was the death of Dr. Grostick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think anything comes close. Sure, I could say the loss of Dr. J.K. Umber, who I was very close to and and thought the world of. Um, but the loss of Dr. Grostick was just a loss that we haven't been able to replace. Mm-hmm. And sadly enough, I don't know that we will. That's what's that's the thing that's I guess because Dr. Grostick was just he was one of the only ones that had the connection to his father, John F. Grostick, and knew the history, knew the underpinnings of the work, had this incredible intellect, <clears throat> the uh a drive to get things done from a research standpoint, that was involved in politics, was in a great position of influence at Life University. And was really was my highlight of the professionally every year was to hear him speak. And when I was a student at Life, I would follow him around like crazy. Every every time he spoke, I would be there to listen to him. Matter of fact, we were very lucky in our club on campus. We 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 met on Wednesday nights, and from six to seven, Dr. Grostick taught every week. And then from seven, we would have guest speakers, which would be you know Dr. Ken Umber, Dr. J. K. Umber. Dr. Steve Umber, Dr. Bo Rochester, Dr. Steve Sheik, and others would come and, and lecture and, and teach in our club. What an incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm. I went to chiropractic school at probably one of the most unique times in history. Because sure sounds of, like it. Of the teachers that we had at the chiropractic school and all the upper cervical doctors that were in practice, that you could go and watch them and follow them and things that we just don't have now. But anyway... He, um, Doctor, I think I was a pest, Doctor Crostick, and he didn't really. I think, I think he misunderstood me. He didn't really understand what I was. What, he, he, I think he thought I was actually almost like um, doing an expose or something, you know, trying to, you know, dig up dirt or something because uh. I would ask questions about everything. But um, I really admired him and thought the world of him. And Doctor Richard Crostick, his son, um, helped me in the development of the history of. Um, the upper cervical care in our new book, which I think is just the best stuff. I mean, we worked so hard on that. Um, Dr. Grostick was incredible at documenting. Dr. John F. Grostick. You know, Dr. Grostick um, went through one of the first ever courses taught at Palmer School on HIO. He was in one of the first classes. He's got a complete type set of notes on the, one of the first classes on HIO ever taught by B.J. Palmer. Hmm. Um, and he, he has got, we have got boxes and boxes and boxes. They can fill a warehouse full of typed records. Not handwritten. He didn't handwrite anything. Hmm. Everything was typed. And he had carbon copies of every letter he sent to doctors. So wow. he had a copy of it. And then we have all these letters from doctors. And some of this stuff is just, it's so interesting and amazing, these correspondences. And uh, so we really have the real history of, of how this stuff was developed. We really know um, the timeline. Um, we know who did what, who didn't do what, um, and whatnot. Um, so um, we, we actually left a lot of stuff out of the book because I didn't want to be too divisive and, 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 and you know, and 
because you know I always try to think in terms of that you know with the other other techniques and other things that have been written but anyway that being said um I think by far it was such a sad thing I'll never forget going to the funeral um it's something that really has has never left me I mean it's a void even though I I, I was I've become kind of friends with Dr. Grostick I was never a close colleague of his I wasn't you know in his you know, I wasn't in his league, I guess you could say. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a sadness that has never left me. Um, and I, I remember at the time when it happened, I thought, you know, I can just give up right here. Because, you know, you like to think that, you know, in the greater scheme of things, you know, in God's plan, that, you know, good people that are doing good things in the world, that, you know, they get a chance to, you know, continue, you know, to finish what they're, or, or what they started. And, you know, it just didn't seem right. It just didn't make any sense, you know. It, all the projects that he had going on that would have just revolutionized upper cervical care, um, just uh, scientific studies that no one has been able to pick up the ball and run with it. Yeah. Um, there was a chance at one time of me going to life and trying to eventually be groomed into that role, but it just couldn't happen. But anyway, that would be the darkest by far. Um, the brightest... Um, Wow, you know, um, there's been, I guess, a, a bunch of them. You know, I think, I think recently, of course, Dr. Dick Colt's study, um, and all the media attention that we've gotten from that, I think that's a, a bright light. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Dr. Dick Colt is um, someone I admire, and respect. I've been in his practice and followed him around, and uh, boy, you've got to interview him. He's uh, he's something else. He is, he's he's a he's a one of his kind. Mm. Um, very um very passionate person about this work and uh very and hey listen it's his way or the highway baby in his practice and he tell and he tells the patients that and i can vouch for him he tells them you do what i tell you to do or you don't come back and yeah i uh, actually i had a patient of his uh um in florida and she she said the same thing yeah you uh toe the line and uh and there's no telling what he'll say but he is a—he's a—he's one of the champions of the profession. I think that's a—that was a bright light. You know, the, the uh, when the HIV study came out, when Dr. Rostick was um, still alive, that was—that uh, was a big deal at that time. Um, you know, um, gosh, there was—you uh, know, I mean, for me, I mean, I guess the publication of the books. But you know that—you know, how much of an impact that's going to make, I don't know. Yeah. Time will tell. Who knows? But um, there's uh, there's so much that's left to be done. Yeah. Um, you know, we're getting close. I think you know the the evolution and seeing all these different upper cervical chiropractors, you know, in one room, you know, together. I've talked with uh, without mentioning names. I've talked with some influential, powerful upper cervical doctors about um, uh, you know how we need to have everybody involved. You know, I don't want to go to another joint AUCCO conference if I don't see Blair here, mm. if I don't see um, you know, knee chest here. You know, I don't wanna I don't wanna be a part of it. You know, I want everybody there. And I have doctors argue me, I mean, just think I'm horrible for saying that. Mm. And I think to myself, who who do I think I am that I am too good to be in the same room with another upper cervical doctor just because they adjust them differently than me. Mm. How 
insane, absurd it is to say that. Yeah. You know, just to disassociate, think you're too good to be around them. I'm not saying that you got to learn their work or do what they're doing, but you can't rub elbows with them. I just think it's it's just ridiculous. You know, I had little ideas like that when I was in chiropractic school when I was immature. But, you know, it's just you have to get past that if we're going to have a chance to survive because there are, you know, regulatory agencies out there. There are many different legal and other entities that want to get rid of you. And, uh, you know, it's like the old Benjamin Franklin said, if we don't hang together, we'll hang alone. Mm Do you have uh, much of a relationship with uh, your local medical doctors, and do they get what you're doing? You know, I have um, I have re- always received medical referrals. Um, for whatever reason, I've not been getting as much in the past couple of years, but um, I've uh, I have um, had you know closer. They're kind of a funny group. I've got I've had many medical doctors as patients over the years, and they'll make the the best patients or the worst patients. Um, usually they're not good patients. Once you know they get their relief, you know they quit. Mm-hmm. But um, I have uh, had an orthopedic surgeon that I got to know fairly well. Um, it's kind of a long story as how we hooked up together. <clears throat> it started out of a kind of an uh, argument over the. Um, you know, I'll tell you real quickly when I published my case study on the scoliosis correction, the 88% correction that I published in the CRJ years ago. There was. Uh, I would always send press releases to the newspaper um, whenever I would go somewhere or do something. And they and when I did the press release on this case study, I sent the, the paper, the case study, with it to the editor. And the uh, editor saw it and gave it to a reporter and said, hey, I want you to go interview this chiropractor. We're going to do a story on scoliosis. So they came to my office and uh, we did the interview. And they were supposed to interview you know, the spine surgeons and all these other people, and it was like I was just going to be a part of it. Well, she was so impressed that she did the whole thing on me, basically, you know, mm-hmm. front-page story. Well, the one of the spine surgeons got so mad about it that he wrote a letter to the editor saying that, <clears throat> that it's ridiculous to think that a chiropractor could help scoliosis, even what Dr. Erickson claims that he can do. Mm-hmm. Well, this now started a fight because... Uh, another chiropractor in town started writing letters to the editor criticizing the the um, the surgeon, and then they wrote other chiropractors wrote him threatening letters. I had patients of mine calling his office, telling him off. I had one lady from India; she cussed him out, and uh, she this was it was a zoo. And I did nothing; I just sat back and let it all happen. When it all started to die down, I called him on the phone. And basically said, okay, you know, you've seen what a mess you've stirred up here. Now let's talk about it. Oh, man. And, of course, he just started yawning and on and on. And I said, listen, here's what you got to do. You need to come to my office. You need to follow me around. You need to give me a chance to explain what I do. So long story short, he he was afraid I was going to sue him because um, he, he called me out in the newspaper, used my name, and said basically what I do is a joke, Yeah, you know, which I wouldn't do that. Um, this is during the middle of the time. Um, many, some chiropractors may r- remember the 2020 story about the chronic fatigue surgery where they were doing the laminectomies in the upper neck oh, yeah. all the way in the cervical spine. That came from my town. Oh. That comes from Dothan, Alabama. And it's a crazy story, but um, the uh, you know I guess i got to be careful about patient confidentiality. But um, 
suffice it to say, I almost was in a position to stop that whole thing from happening. But because of the um, dispute with a patient in my office with my wife, who was pregnant at the time, caused me to kick this patient out of my practice. Oh, no. That caused this one medical doctor to discontinue coming in, and he never got his adjustment. And one thing led to another, and then and this whole surgery thing started and went into just a circus. Because all these patients were getting this, these uh, laminectomies, and about um, 50% of them were doing good, and the other 50% were getting totally disabled. And so this spine surgeon was one of the doctors that was, um, you know, filing complaints against this medical doctor that was shipping all these patients to Birmingham to get this surgery. And there were some lawsuits threatened and board uh, violations. And it was a whole big mess going back and forth. And my whole thing with scoliosis came up in the middle of that. So I think this guy here was kind of concerned that, oh, my gosh, I've done, I'm going to now deal with another legal issue. So anyway, we kind of got on the same page and he got a, a respect for what I do and I've actually been in surgery with him. I've been I've been in there and watched him do a cervical fusion. I've I was like right next to him the whole time. Hmm. I could have, you know, stuck my finger in their spinal canal if I wanted to. Wow. So um I've had uh, I've had, I actually had a cardiologist in my town that's referred me more patients than anybody else. Wow. So yeah, I, I do have um I take care of some medical doctors. Is it what it should be? No, it's not. Partly because I don't have the time um, to uh, to really pursue it. Um, but one thing I did do that really started the referrals is um, and something I don't do quite as much as I used to, but I used to always ask the patients if I could send a report to their medical doctor. And I would do a little short narrative for it, and I would send that with the records, you know, the pre- and post-posture corrections and the feet pictures, and they probably don't want to know what the heck that's all about. But I would send a nice report near a professional report to the medical doctor, just give them the information, and I would send them an update when I would, you know, after a month after they did better. And of course, that's just the way medical doctors communicate. That's the way they think. Mm-hmm. You know, they they think by reports, and so that started to um, stimulate referrals. But even the ones that are patients, they don't even refer that much. It's almost like. It's so it's out of the box, you know. They they're so trained to think a certain way, that it almost like they have to be re- jolted into remembering. Oh yeah, by the way, Doctor Erickson. Yeah. Usually, if a patient will bring it up and say, "What about a chiropractor?" and they'll say, "Oh yeah, I got a good one for you." Yeah. You know, and of course they like the fact that I don't twist and manipulate the neck because <clears throat> there's been at least three strokes that have occurred in, in Dothan over the years that have been attributed to chiropractor. Mm. So that's, you know, amongst some of the medical doctors, that's very well known. And I there's one neurosurgeon that tells patients, don't ever let any chiropractor touch your neck and all that kind of stuff. So. If uh, patients uh, miss appointments, uh, possibly because they're holding their adjustment or they just don't see the need to be checked on a regular basis, do you release them for noncompliance? Do you try to get them back on schedule? Or do you just accept them on their own terms, feeling that some chiropractic is better than none? It's a good question. You know, I pretty much, I have some patients that I just know. I just know that, you know, hey, it is ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Just accept them on their own. However, here's the caveat. Don't come in my office bitching and complaining. In other words, you're going to go ahead and dictate your own care plan. I've been seeing them for you know five years, and they're just going to pop in whatever. You come in, and I'll take you where you are. 
Mm-hmm. In other words, I'll adjust to do what I can, and then you know it goes from there. But don't complain about why one adjustment didn't create a miracle for you. Mm-hmm. They know that, and 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 usually that's not an issue. But I still try to educate. I never release patients. A lot of upper cervical doctors. They take care of them to a point, then they release them, and they quote unquote teach them how to determine when they're out of adjustment. And I don't believe in that. Not to say I'm right; it's just not what I do. Mm-hmm. I just try to keep patients on a schedule of, and it may be some rare cases once every three weeks, to others once every three months, mm-hmm. and they they fall somewhere in between there, based on how they well they hold their adjustments and how well they do. But I just think people need to be checked, and I think for me personally, I. Do not want a practice where I'm having to adjust people all throughout the day. I want I adjust probably you know maybe about half the patients or less, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a day, and that's you know it's an easier practice that way, a quote unquote maintenance practice. But you know it's funny after the first time I went and followed Dr. Dick Colts around, and I watched him handle patients and talk to them. You know, if, if you miss another appointment. Don't come back. I don't care if you know my daughter. Your friends were hurt. Don't ask her either. You're not coming back. You know, and it's funny. I, I and I came home on the plane and I said, you know, by gosh, I need to be like Doctor Dickel. And uh, you know, I ain't putting up with anything anymore. And I came back to my practice. And I remember telling my uh, assistants, I said, here's how it's going to be. You know, and they're like looking at me like, huh? And so I remember that first week, I was just. You know, ripping and roaring, and I was telling them, "This is the way it's going to be. You do it my way, or how." And I remember doing it and thinking, "Oh gosh, I don't know if that's the right thing to say." <laughs> and I just try to make myself do it, and um, I probably pissed off, you know, a handful of people along the way. And I just kind of come to the realization: I said, "I'm not Dr. Dick Colts. I just can't do it." Yeah. <laughs> so I had to kind of, you know, back down and be a wimp again. But you know, you, I just try to. I've always believed. Beat the patient to the punch. You need to keep spreading out their appointments as long as you can justify it clinically. You need to, before they ask to um, be released or or to go longer, mm-hmm. you need to be one that dictates that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you can't do that if you're still trying to see them every two or three weeks mm-hmm. for too long of a period of time because they're going to want to go longer. So, obviously, you need to have them on every six weeks or every you know four weeks, five weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, whatever. You know, but, you know, you just need to be the one that's always pushing. So sometimes I try to spread them out too fast, and they say, no, I want to come in, you know, and, and you know, before that. And that's okay, too. What are your thoughts, <clears throat> excuse me, what are your thoughts on the differences in the approach to atlas rotation with the different upper cervical disciplines? For example, atlas translation and tracking and Blair work, um, the rotational listing derived from the vertex in the or uh, in the uh, grostic uh, techniques, um, and the uh, uh, approach to uh, analysis that says Atlas does not rotate in relation to condyles. What, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, you know, I tell you, a good one to talk to about this is Dr. Bo Rochester. Again, he's um, again he's got the best mind in our work, orthospinology. As far as the biomechanics, um, you know, he and I have discussed this, you know, topic before, and you know, I, I guess uh, it, it has to do with the, you know, the biomechanics of the upper cervical spine are very complex, obviously, even in just a normal person, and I think it's very possible that 
we're describing, you know, like the Blair group and, and as our, our Fogmore group, and we may be describing the same uh, misalignment, just um, different methods and points of view, you know, as far as where we're looking at it. And each way has its strong points and its weak points, possibly. But, you know, one thing to keep in mind is well accepted in the scientific community that the atlas does miss, does rotate in relation to the occiput to a small degree. And, um, you know, one of the best studies um, was in spine in 2004 and uh, that showed that it, you know, misalignment, uh, that it rotated about you know, 1.7 degrees, less than 2 degrees. And there's others studies that show that very little movement occurs between Atlas and Oxford to anything from, you know, a few degrees to as much as eight degrees in some cases. So I do think that um, there is, you know, a rotational misalignment that can occur around the condyles. However, um, you know, we're talking about these studies are, are people that are quote-unquote normal cases. But if you start throwing in uh, various instantaneous axis of rotation um, due to you know, prior injuries or joint fixations, um, this you know might be better explained. You know, Dr. Blair's observations, you know, in subluxated people, <clears throat> how it's not really uh, rotating as much as it is tracking along the convergence of the articulations, possibly. But in orthospinology, uh, we've chosen to define the position of the atlas in three planes. Relationship to the skull, and uh, again, I think um, you know there's similarities between the two different ways. And uh, what we really need to do is do some cooperative research that um, will help us, you know, you know, really better define this. But I think we just need to keep working on doing validity research on each of the various methods of analysis. And once we are able to determine the validity of each method, now we can go in there and we can start um, doing, um, uh, start looking at maybe, you know, combining, uh, you know, the different ways of anal analyzing, you know, the subluxation. Do you think it would be possible to somehow combine the differences in analysis of, uh, uh, of uh, both techniques to include uh, Blair protractor views as uh, an adjunct to the nasium to verify or confirm? Uh, atlas movement, atlas laterality? Well, I think just as I just said, you know, I, I think, you know, it's a step-by-step -step process. You know, first we need more research on the validity of each method. Yeah. And then um, we have to, we have to have more understanding about what we're doing, really. Mm. Uh, right now we have a lot of ideas, and they're pretty good ideas. But are the, how close are they to actually what's going on? You know, the thing is, um, upper cervical work gets you know, gets criticized because they say, well, you know, we're trying to define how the um, the spine is supposed to be. Um, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's too mechanistic, you know. And what I say is that upper cervical care is very mechanistic in its, in its assessment and in, in the correction of the, the subluxation, but it is very vitalistic in our understanding of health and healing, and I think much more so than the um, vitalists out there out there criticizing us, actually. So, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm trying to get back on my train of thought here, but, 
it's uh, it's just one of these things that um, we we just we have good ideas, but we we got a good start. But you know, we know clinically this stuff seems to work pretty darn well, and we have a pretty decent um, rationale to explain it. But uh, we still got a long ways to go. We need much more research, and I think the research that we're doing right now with this practice-based study, can you imagine the data points on 600 patients that we've got so far? And once we get 1,000 um, and we're, we have all these different outcome assessments and, and, and we tie it in with the listings and whatnot, it's going to go a long ways in, in helping to define and figure out. Like one, one of the things that we're, we're figuring out here is that we look at pre and post x-rays. We've always thought that, you know, we always try to get a 50% correction that's kind of one of our goals. But really what we're finding is that it seems like the threshold seems to be that if you can move the atlas laterality a degree, that's the key. So whether it's a one-degree listing that you reduce down to zero or a five-degree listing you reduce down to four, it seems to be that moving it that one degree is really, or, you know, of course you want to get better than that if you can, but that's really kind of the threshold. And, uh, and little things like that you kind of glean from looking at the data. And you have to have numbers to um, come up with conclusions because we can we come up with all these ideas and we come up with a hypothesis. And then when we look at our clinical practice, what we do is we look at the cases that agree with our hypothesis and we forget in our mind the cases that don't. Just human nature. Yeah. So you got to be able to track the numbers and go back and look at really what's going on. I have a uh, clinical question for you that a doctor asked, and I'm just going to read it word for word. I had an 88-year-old male present to my office with right shoulder pain. He said uh, started when he was getting an MRI to ha um, to check his heart for aneurysms. Um, they found he was a ticking time bomb, and he refused. He refused surgery. They were also visible on plain film x-ray. But being an upper cervical grostic doc, I was hoping that I could help him. But on the lateral cervical, I found axis erosion due to vertebral artery tortuosity. He has a five and a quarter anterior rotation of the atlas as well. The question is, would you adjust his atlas with all this going on? At this point, I told him I wouldn't take his case. This is the first time she's ever done this and after consulting with two other upper cervical docs. What is your opinion? Would you have accepted the case, or would you have done what she did? You know, it, there's... Um, chiropractic um, may not have limits in theory in certain cases, um, but there is the whole issue of the, the human aspect of practicing, of having to practice. Mm. and and the uh, the uh, issues you have um, as far as uh, malpractice risk and, and whatnot. So you have to weigh the risk-benefit ratio, not just the clinical issue with the patient, um, but you also have to, you know, benefit, you know, weigh the risks for yourself personally. Now, that being said, um, I have, uh, you know, had cases, you know, maybe not like this, but along the same lines. It's a high-risk case that I've, I've turned away for, for various reasons. And a lot of it has to do, you have to size up the patient. How comfortable do you feel with the patient? Okay. Um, you have to, of course, obviously weigh the risk of, you know, intervening in an area that's unstable, 
Um, I had a case that a guy came in with a um, fractured odontoid, and it was unstable. And he didn't know he even had it. He came to me, and he wanted me to manipulate his spine. He wanted me to crack his neck, crack his back. No, He didn't want any x-rays, too, which I told him first off. I said, we're going to take x-rays if we're going to accept your case. And I said, and we don't do that type of uh, manipulation, so I'd have to refer you to another chiropractor. And fortunately for him, he said, no, that's okay. I'll, I'll do what you want me to do. What happened with him, and many, many years ago, he got thrown through the windshield of a car and broke his jaw. And at the hospital, they said they saw something on his neck x-rays, and they weren't sure if it was broken or not. And he never went back to get it checked out. So he went through life. He had not gone through any other car accidents or any other falls and just was blessed, and he walks in my office, a ticking time bomb. Mm-hmm. And so when we found the fractured odontoid, the deflection view, and saw it was unstable, we sent him out to, uh, we would try to refer him out, but we couldn't because he was an, um, a veteran, and he couldn't go to the hospital without his medical doctor referring him. So that took four days, and he uh, eventually went over there to the hospital, and they pushed on his neck to move it around. and said, hey, you're so old, uh, you haven't had any problems with it. You know, he said, or they said, does your neck hurt? He says, no, it doesn't hurt. He says, it wasn't hurt before. And they said, well, I wouldn't worry about it. Mm. You're so old. So he comes back to me, and I'm telling him, no, you got to go to a neurosurgeon and get this evaluated because you could get in a rear-ended accident, be paralyzed, on and on. And, of course, he gave me all these excuses about going to, um, you know, vacation, on and on. <laughs> so anyway, he, I just did what I could. I documented that. I called him at his house. And just nothing was going to happen. So, anyway, he his wife calls my office four and a half months later, and she says, and I'm busy with patients, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what's she going to tell me? So I get on the phone, and she says, oh, Dr. Erickson, just want to thank you so much. We finally went to that doctor you told us about. And I said, really? So what did he do? He says, well, he put a collar around his neck and said not to move. Mm-hmm. And so he did surgery and fused it, and everything is fine. And he said, everything you told him... Everything he told us was the same thing that you had said. So I said, I said, okay, well, good. Well, anyway, I published that case in uh, the Clinical Chiropractic, which is published by Elsevier. It's a European chiropractic journal. And uh, I did it for the purpose because I was used it as a, a platform to argue against insurance guidelines because my point was that if I would have followed the insurance guidelines, my care to this man was inappropriate. It's considered to be inappropriate care. And yet, um, you know, doing what I felt, my clinical judgment, I was able to, you know, potentially prevent a disaster, you know, obviously. Um, I had another case many years ago, a patient that was 100 years old, literally. Actually, he didn't know if he was 99 or 100. <laughs> they lived out in the woods, uh-huh. and they, um, his wife was a patient, and they didn't have any records or anything on him. They just were country people. And he was a bit strange. He would come in with her, and, um, you know, she had been seeing her for a few years. And finally, his back was hurting so bad, she talked him into coming to see me. And he would wear garlic around his neck to ward off evil spirits and stuff like that. So (laughs) this kind of gives you an idea. So anyway, he comes in, and he was kind of tough to deal with. But um, he went back there, and I x-rayed him, x-rayed his neck. But I had to x-ray his back, too. And when I x-rayed him, I noticed I couldn't see the bottom of his sacrum or the bottom half of his sacrum. So I said, well, maybe I took it too dark. So I changed my factors and took it again, and I still couldn't see it. Hmm. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, this don't look good. 
so, and I'm thinking, you know, metastatic cancer, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I sent it to a radiologist real quick, and he agreed with me. And, of course, I'm going to adjust his atlas anyway, you know, because I figured, you know, he needs that done. And he was, uh, he wouldn't lay on the table. He started cursing at my secretary. And so I just walked in there and just let him have it. You know, and I said, listen, you don't talk that way in here. And, you know, you got to lay on the table and on and on. And uh, so it was a bad situation. But anyway, it got worse because when I found out he had cancer, I told him immediately. Uh. And I said, you got to go to a medical doctor. And he says, I'm not going. And I said, you have to. And he says, I'm not. You know, and I said, when I try to talk to his wife, and I figured she'd be reasonable. And she said, oh, he don't want to go. He ain't going to go. Hmm. And I said, well, you don't realize this is bad. You know, and I called him on the phone. And I tried to talk. And I just thought that was going to happen. So he was the same way as this other guy. Wouldn't go. Yeah. And so he just eventually went to the VA um, hospital and just laid up. You know, eventually got so bad and just laid up and died, basically. Hmm. You know, and they never, they never even checked it. They never went any further. Hmm. So that was interesting. But um, the thing is, you know, you can't you can't save the world. You're going to have cases that you need help, and that's where, of course, having a good relationship with the, with the medical profession is helpful. Um, but as far as this case here, um, you know, without having real specifics as far as looking at the film to see just how bad the erosion is, and and and, and knowing exactly about the virtual artery, you know, tortuosity, um, it's uh, it, it's still a case that, you know. I, I'm kind of a risk taker. You know, it may be someone that if I felt really good about, I might would accept that case. Again, not without knowing all the details, mm -hmm. you know. But it would have to be someone, for instance, the surgery I told you about where they do those complete laminectomies right. for people with chronic fatigue. I've had these people come to me because there's been so many people who have had it done around here. And a lot of these people are really, psychologically, they're not right. Okay, because one, they've been in chronic pain for so many years that the pain makes you a little bit crazy. Um, but also, if you're going to agree to do that kind of a surgery, where you're going to cut the whole back of your neck out, basically, yeah, that's a little bit loopy. Yeah, you know, let someone do that to you. So they come in here, and they're just not stable, and and uh, not, they're not stable biomechanically for one thing. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, but then psychologically, so I say, listen, what I've done. A lot of them have a lot of head tilt. So I will lay them on the side of the head tilt, and I'll crank up the headpiece and kind of take the head tilt out, and I'll, and I'll put like an impulse under the uh, with the instrument mm -hmm. under the headpiece. Mm -hmm. And that will, you know, kind of straighten their head out and give them some relief. Hmm. But I won't touch the atlas. Um, but then I had this one case where this one guy, who just seemed to be a real straight arrow, a nice guy, and I sat down, I looked at his film, and I just told him, I said, you know, I just don't think, I mean, his, he had a laminectomy of his atlas, everything. <clears throat> and I just told him, I said, I just don't know, I don't think I can take your case. And he didn't break down crying, but you could tell he just was so disappointed. And I had his wife in there, and she was so disappointed. And it just got to me, and I said, oh, Lord, I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't do this, but I just changed my mind. I said, okay, listen. I said, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it, you know. <laughs> And this guy has, uh, actually, this guy's featured in the new textbook. His, his x-rays are in the new textbook. And he has done so well. Hmm. Um, we used a handheld instrument, very light contact. We took post-film, um, just adjusted very lightly, and it has given him a lot of relief. And, and I'm glad I took the case. I'm glad I did that. Hmm. 
but you know it, it's one of those things that I felt good about him. You know, I had a good vibe on him. Yeah. And uh, but if you are not sure, because it's not about you hurting someone or not, it's about perception. Yeah. And uh, it's just that if you do something and something falls apart, even if it has nothing to do with you. I represented a, a, chiro- a chiropractor um, in a malpractice case who was accused of killing a patient. And uh, he died of a stroke. And I, after reviewing the whole case, I don't. I think um, the chiropractor had nothing to do with it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you look at the whole details. But he ended up, uh, of course, being blamed for it. And he got in trouble because of his records. And, and again, this is a good lesson to learn. He was brought up on charges by the board, um, like, like almost a, like a very short period of time before this happened to him with his malpractice case. Hmm. And then with the case there, he apparently did, still didn't learn his lesson because he still didn't document very well. And long story short, we worked really hard on the case, and we came up with a great defense. And the lawyer was very happy, was ready to fight it. But because it was a $5 million lawsuit, you know, the guy, uh, he was a younger chiropractor, he kind of panicked, and he settled. Mm-hmm. And even though they signed, they had the wife of the deceased patient sign a um, confidential or sign some type of agreement that basically saying that she won't go after him or turn him in or something. Mm-hmm. She did anyway, mm-hmm. and she turned him into the board. And of course, now the board went after his license, and uh, he just gave it up. He just gave up his license and quit. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad because it all led to poor records. Mm-hmm. You know, if he had good records, none of this would have happened. Yeah. And yet, um, you know, and it saddens me because you get a lot of these, uh, some of these people, these big philosophy speakers out there that, um, some practice management people there that are encouraging doctors to be unprofessional, you know, and setting themselves up for a time bomb. Mm. And uh, so, you know. A good answer. All right, one last question. If you had to start over from scratch, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? Hmm. Well, gosh, you're in chiropractic, right? Yeah. Well, I would have been smart. I would have. I would have. Uh, there's a lot of different areas, I guess. One, I probably would have taken more interest in the um, the financial part of my practice and been smarter when it comes to money, because I've never been interested in money. And and of course, I have a big, huge house. I got a big office. You know, I mean, I got more stuff like that than probably most, than a lot of doctors, but um, still, I've been very stupid about the money part, you know, mm-hmm. and whereas I see a lot of the carpenters are very intelligent about that, and so I would say, you know, you know, do that early in your practice, you know, take an interest in it, you know, mm-hmm. be smart about that side of it, because that'll pay dividends, so that's one really poor, I guess you could say, I've been about. Um uh, starting from scratch, of course, you know, if you start from scratch now, I would say go digital yeah. with your x-rays, of course. But, you know, that wasn't an option back then. You know, boy, starting from scratch, what would I have done differently? That's hard to say because I think um, I've been very eclectic with the way I'm very lucky because I'm able to hand adjust patients. I'm able to use a handheld instrument. I'm able to use a table-mounted instrument. And that's one of the beauties of orthospinology is that we're we're eclectic that way. We have these different approaches. And so I can figure out 
you know, which way is going to be best for the patient. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a big um, added weapon there. Um, but I think my evolution, you know, uh, of course, we all, um, you know, learn more and become more open-minded and, um, you know, you just grow. I mean, that's why they call it practice, because you're practicing to get better. And I'm still trying to get better. I need to get a lot better because these patients need me to get better. Yeah. Well, listen, you've been very, very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, listen, I applaud your efforts uh, with what you're doing. I think it's going to be a, a great thing. Um, you just, uh, I'll, I'll give you other names of doctors to interview. And I tell you, if we can just uh, keep a collection like this, you know, years from now, um, this might uh, be beneficial to the younger generation of chiropractors. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much, doctor. Yes, sir. Thank you. You have a good day. Okay. And get some life. sleep. I will. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here is another bonus for all upper cervical doctors. How would you like to learn seven steps to transforming your upper cervical practice into the referral machine that you've always wanted? I've written an ebook titled Seven Steps to an Extraordinary Upper Cervical Practice, and you can download it and read it for free by going to www.uppercervicaldocs.com forward slash free. In this book, I reveal how to craft a message that is easily understood by your patients and prospective patients and that answers the question, why should I choose you to be my doctor? How to integrate that message into every piece of media that leaves your office. How to manage your patient list for easy communication with them. How to create a patient newsletter that gets read and passed around and responded to. How to take advantage of the most powerful tool in your asset arsenal, your satisfied patients and plus much, much more. To download this book and read it for free, just go to www.uppercervicaldocs.com forward slash free.